You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two-hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi-platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedouin Soundclash, I Mother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He achieved a level of mastery as the bass player for the Salads, as well as the multi-platinum band, I Mother Earth. So welcome to the podcast, making his triumphant return, Chuck Daly. Chuck, <laughs> listen, you've accomplished lots of great things uh, over your life and career. I mean, sold out shows with I Mother Earth, uh, lucrative song placements with the Salads, with beer commercials, lots of great stuff. But today... You become the first ever three-time guest on the Joel Martin Mastery Podcast. I mean, what an honor. What an honor. <laughs> it it truly is, Joel. I love being here. Thank you. It is a good break from my normal days. So it's it's really nice to be here with you. I see you're always hustling. So uh, any little break you can get is is good. I, I think you could probably use a vacation at some point. What do you think? Yeah, I've been I've been looking forward to something like that in the new year. I was going to take all of December off, but my work just got too busy and there's too many people that need me. And I don't know, it's we're coming up on the holiday times. It's fun to look at the wall behind you. I may have mentioned this before, but it's like when I look at the wall behind you, I can tell you I see I have like stories of all of these bands. So Ill Scarlet right there. We the salads took them on their very first tour. Um who else is here? Finger Eleven, obviously, I've toured all over the country with them. Big Sugar, the same sort of thing. I have some good Big Sugar stories, but I've played in a lot of these bands, too. I remember with Moist, there's oh, stuff with Moist. David Usher, yeah. right? Yeah, I did a couple shows with David Usher, and then I, I do regular shows with the guys in Moist. Yeah, but it's uh, like a corporate kind of band that we work on. So, yeah, okay. I have and, a long, and- bizarre career, yeah. Yeah, and I know uh, you're good friends with with Jerry Finn, who's an incredible musician. Is that there's a David Usher connection in there as well? Oh yeah, well he was David Usher's guitar player when David went solo, um, and I believe Jerry's got a, a Juno, or at least he's got. I know he's got sort of platinum records for um, what he worked on with David because he was part of his touring band that whole time and was writing those songs with them before sort of John is now joined forces with them, right? So. Okay. Yeah, I love Jerry. Jerry's one of my favorite people on the planet. It's funny, whenever my wife, so a, a big reason I stopped touring is it's, you know, there's clashes of personalities and things like that a lot of the time too. And my wife always asks me, if you were going to tour, if you could choose any band to tour the whole planet with and just spend all your time with it, who would it be? And the very first person that always comes to mind is Jerry. I would play with Jerry. <laughs> like, it's no question. I'd be, a, I would love to just travel with Jerry around the world. It would be so fun. That's awesome. You know, obviously from being a guest several times that I always ask the guests if they can think of um, future guests that would be great if they could suggest someone. And you've recommended Jerry, other people, two or three other people have recommended him. I've had him on my list. Um, I, he he did some some shows with the Killer Dwarves not in, in the summer, I think. And we were seeing- our player in the Killer Dwarves. Yeah, yeah, so we were seeing he wanted to maybe come on with another member and the schedules just didn't align. So we'll, we'll get him on. It's easy. I got him in the crosshairs and I know he'll be a great guest. 
Beautiful. Beautiful. Yes. So what we'll do is we will, uh, we've already done two full two hour deep dives. We've covered your life, career, discography. So you were on in 2021 on episode 32. You were on in 2022 episode 74. So this looks like a yearly occurrence with us here. Uh, and today we're going to do something different. This is a part of the new series called My Five Favorite Albums. So we're going to catch up for a few minutes. Uh, we'll cover things you've been up to over the last year, and then we're going to nerd out uh, over your five favorite albums. All right, let's get nerdy. Yeah, it's funny. When I think when we did the first podcast, we were talking about me doing tours with these guys. Yeah, I, I think that's at Massey Hall. And then the second one, we were talking about this record with the standstills that I played on. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, there's there's always something, always something happening. So oh, and uh, there's a salad space for you there, right there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's the cover of one of the albums, right? Yeah, from the big picture. Yeah. There you go. So let's talk about uh, during the last year or so, you scored for an eight-part docu-series. What can you share with our listeners about this docu-series and how different is it scoring versus just writing songs for a band? Well, I, I've done it a couple times now and it's quite enjoyable. I've always, I, I really like when somebody gives me something to animate, um, something that's already kind of there. Um, and this this last docu-series was really, really interesting, pretty heavy topic. It was on homelessness and rural communities. And it was an eight-part radio docu-series that we did. Um, it was actually produced by Neil Young's sister, Astrid Young. Um, she wrote all the dialogue for it. And so, yeah, I get all of this dialogue and various interviews of different homeless people with these wild stories. And then you have to animate it with music. Um, and this last one that I did was really, really fun because I did it with my 17-year-old son, Andrew, um, who has in the last couple of years become pretty proficient on a lot of instruments. Um, and I had him do a whole bunch of piano work because I, I sit here in my, this is my recording room here that I'm sitting in. Um, and across the hall is his room where he's got a drum set and all these instruments. So I'm all the time listening to him play. And there's something that struck me about the way he writes and plays piano that I did it with this time. And it was really, really excellent. So I just said, here, this, here is this dialogue, listen to it and just play along with it and see what comes out. And the stuff that he played was gorgeous. And so it was actually this, this last one I did was mostly him playing piano and me sort of editing it throughout the, all of these different programs over, over an eight, eight week period. And it was excellent. And then he got paid. It's on his resume now. And, and now he's a songwriter too, and, uh, and a producer. And, um, and I, I've done other ones prior to that, where I would produce entire bands worth some music where I just do it all and, and score it. But yeah, it's quite fun. I really like doing it. Any, anytime anybody gives me a project like that, like I, I like when people give me something like a starting point. That's what was so fun about working on the standstills was Johnny and Renee had almost the entire album completely written and they were just sending me tracks with just guitar and drums um and then some vocal stuff put on a bunch of the tunes and then just play along with it um and so i just got to sort of paint all over it and i thought i was so perfect and ready because i painted on top of everything that they sent me but 
when you get to the studio, you learn that, oh, now they're working with Neil Sanderson and Neil has, Neil would be another great guest, by the way, from Three Days Grace. Um, Neil has rearranged a lot of these songs with them and changed the chord progressions. And, and so it was sort of starting all over, but that same sort of thing where you're given this, this sort of canvas that's partly finished being painted. It's almost like when you pass around, like that game you play as a kid where you pass around a piece of paper and try to draw a picture together sort of thing. And just everybody's little addition counts and you don't know what your final product is going to be. And that's sort of the way that radio stuff works too. And those docu-series is you don't really know and you just kind of go for it and hope that it feels right. You just got to trust the way it feels, you know, so. What's uh, what's the name of that docu-series for our listeners that might want to go find it? Oh my God. It was almost a minute. (laughs) To remember, but I I can, I can send you a link and you can, you can share that with people because there is a link to that as well. That's all good. And was the music like kind of somber because of the subject matter? It was pretty somber and, but there were some positive moments in that. So there is some uplifting stuff in there, but it's not, there's not really rock and roll tunes in there or ska songs or reggae. There are no bangers in there. Yeah, not like the bangers that I usually produce. Um, other docu-series I've done have been like that. And and I actually do produce quite a bit of music for the Prince Edward County's radio, FM radio station as well, which is pretty fun. I do a lot of sort of surf songs and um, show themes for people where I'll play all the instruments. And I don't know, it's pretty fun. So speaking of bangers, you played a few gigs with uh, Jeremy Kelly from Edwin and the Pressure. What what can you what can you tell our audience about those gigs? Oh, it's so nice of you to to associate him with the word banger because I I believe he writes bangers and yeah, Jeremy is an interesting guy. So when I moved out to Prince Edward County in 2016, I believe it was right before I went on this tour, about two weeks before I went on that tour. Um, the very first person I met was Jeremy Kelly. And the amazing thing is I was playing in I Am Other Earth at the time. Edwin had just rejoined the band. Um, and uh, I met Jeremy Kelly as soon as I moved out to the county. And it turns out that he was Edwin's guitar player and one of his songwriters um, for Edwin and the Pressure. And, and, uh, and, I've since played a lot of gigs with Jeremy and in the, in the last year, since I stopped touring, Jeremy's asked me to play a couple shows. It's been really fun. We did a opening one for David Wilcox at base 31 and in uh, Prince Edward County. And then we've played some, a couple other things, uh, Parsons brewery. We did a, we did Oktoberfest this year and played for a couple hours and it's really fun because he's, a really, really, really amazing guitar player. Um, really sweet guy, super good musician. We learned when we met each other that we both went to Humber College at the same time for jazz as well, but just didn't know each other at school. Um, so yeah, I've played a couple of shows with him and it's been really awesome. It's his brother that plays drums in the band who also played with Edwin. Um, and it's excellent. <laughs> And I and I he's got an he's got a cover band called Driver as well, where the other singer Ryan, um, who has some Emmys for stuff he produces for some sound he does for cartoons and things like that. Um 
he also plays with Edwin as well. And he play he tours with some country, some pretty big country artists. And, and so when I get to play with that band, it's loud and kind of out of control. It's very, they're very much like the salads where they play really, really hard and have a lot of fun with what they're doing, but we'll play sort of top 40 songs, but play them as hard as they can. So just controlled yeah. chaos. It's pretty joyful. I sent him a message just the other day. Any other gigs, just sign me up, right? Because I'm looking forward to, I've done, spent most of the last year working on my real estate career and it's been keeping me super, super busy. I've had my best year yet, even in the face of this um, difficult, unbelievable market we've had this past year. Um, but I'm starting to feel a little burnt out from it because I do it a little too much. And I'm starting to look at my guitars hanging on the walls and and my old touring pictures here and thinking I need to get out and play. I need to sweat. I need to exercise. I need to, I want to play some big shows. And so I'm starting to put it out to people. I have a lot of friends and good places and just sort of dropping dropping that around. So I'm dropping that here too. I'm feeling really good. One of the main reasons I had to stop touring um, with the standstills is I was having some pretty serious health problems. Didn't think I'd be able to live on the road um, with the health problems I was having, but it's been over a year since then. And I've worked hard on it and I've corrected all those problems. And I know that I'm fine. I can live in hotels again and get out on the road and be with people. And so it I'm hoping I get to do some of that in the new year. At least I'm looking forward to it. And I definitely am making some music talking about Jerry Finn, um, Jerry and his friend, Trevor Howard, who's also a dear friend of mine. Um, and along with Ken Thor, who was from Sumo Psycho, as well as many other bands, he played in Red Light King, um, things like that, but, uh, they've got a band called ghosts of Memphis that I just adore. It's one of my favorite, favorite records out there. It's so beautiful. They write such beautiful music together. Um, and so a couple months ago, I asked those guys if, if they'd be interested in writing some music in the new year and Trevor is full on game for it. Jerry's always happy to make music with me. So hopefully we get to it and can find time to do it. Cause Jerry's a very, very busy musician, but I, I, I think Trevor and I are going to get some stuff. Cause I've got a whole bunch of songs written that I think he would do a beautiful job finishing at least a better job than when I try to do it with chat GPT. So, <laughs> so you mentioned there are a few health things going on. I remember you had either broken your, your foot or injured your foot. Is that all healed up over the last year or so? Yeah. So it's, it's funny. It's, I could gauge it by, I do a lot of rural real estate. So I walk through a lot of rolling hills and I walk hundreds of acres. And so I sort of can always see what my ankles are doing without having to play these shows and, and stuff. And I can tell you going up, walking up inclines was making my ankle sort of trigger and it's not happening anymore at all, which is really great. My ribs aren't hurting me anymore because I broke a bunch more ribs. I had, I had some other health issues and I've, I've corrected those with diet and, and just, just less stress. Right. So, yeah, yeah they, they say stress kills. So if we can oh, allevi alleviate the stress that that would be good. I think I was right at the end, like my, I was right at the top of the cup every other time we've, we've had these discussions. I was right on the edge. You could have probably just poked me with something that would bother me and I might have gone off. If I asked right? you the wrong question, I could have set off just 
a cast. Oh yeah, you could have set a bomb off, but now I'm feeling really good. That's good. So I feel in a really good position to get out there and really today, contribute. Today was the perfect time to get you back on for the uh, for the the third interview here. Uh, you mentioned David Wilcox, and it reminded me of something I forgot since I was a kid. Uh, I, I grew up in Russell, Ontario, so about thirty minutes outside of Ottawa, heading towards Montreal. It's out in the boonies. Russell, yep. Russell has really grown. But when I was there, there was only like 3000 people and we had the Russell fair. And even though there's only 3000 people, we would get uh, incredible world-class musicians headline the Russell fair because, and, and David Wilcox, uh, headlined and you figure like, how can you get in a 3000 person town? How can you get a big artist? And it's because even there's only, even though there's only 3000 people, there's nothing else going on. And the whole town rallies and you have like 2000 or 25,000, 2,500 people at that one event. So it still ends up being this like arena show in a small town. So I David, Wilcox, I remember my parents went and they were like, man, that guy's crazy good. So those, those sort of Canadian acts, um, and that that's just Canada. All right. That it's, we do shows like that across Canada, all over the place, like all over the place. It's a lot of the time it's funded through our tax dollars and things like that, but it's definitely an amazing way for these small communities to bring everybody together to celebrate. All right. Which is quite incredible. There's, yeah, I could name, I could probably name off 50 little towns like that where you, where they're always surprised that they're getting these big sort of big household name acts in. Um, but it it's providing such an incredible sort of community experience. Really love it. There's one that happens in Welland that's massive. Um, when they happen out where I am, sort of in Prince Edward County, you end up having people gravitating to the area from all around. So you'll get people from Kingston come in and Belleville. And then you have these massive shows in these little towns. The Arkells did one um, up at base 31 and they just did an outdoor show. And that's amazing. The the campfire sessions, I think it was called. Yeah. So those are amazing. And those sort of rural communities too, because after the fact, what you get is people for like miles around sitting on their front porches, just listening because it's so quiet in these towns and dark that when you sit on the porch, you can see the lights off in the distance and you can hear the bands as clear as day. Right. So it's, I don't know. That's, that's fun to hear you tell that Russell story. Yeah. I was going to ask you about this base 31 because over the last year on Facebook, I get targeted with ads from base 31 because I'm not that far from you and from base 31. And, you know, I hadn't heard of it. And then suddenly I see Arkells, Base 31, The Glorious Sons, Base 31, I think maybe like 5440, Base 31. I'm like, how is this little venue in the middle of nowhere getting these incredible artists? So there must be something going on there where people are just showing up in droves for these these artists. It's an awesome venue. So when I first moved to Prince Edward County, um, it's an it's a World War II airbase a decommissioned world war ii airbase is what it is and so there's all these cedar shingle buildings up there and then um the cadets still train up there because we're so close to the trenton cadets and the kingston cadets and all of the military that's around here that they still um fly planes up there um but in and when i first moved to the county i actually went and rented what was the old dentist office on the world 
or two bass. And there's some stuff on YouTube where I'm playing hundred sun songs at two, two in the morning up there. And when I used to go up there, there was nobody but me and the coyotes um, and a bunch of loud heavy metal music. Um, but in the last, I think it was two years ago now, maybe a year and a half ago, it's the guys that rebuilt the distillery district in Toronto um, that purchased that. I don't know if you know the distillery district story, but they bought that on auction on September 11th and they got a crazy deal on it because nobody showed up. It was the September 11th of that huge tragedy in New York and they still held the auction. But anyways, those guys have done extremely well on, on, um, on that. And they ended up buying base 31 in Prince Edward County, this old air force base. And it's, and it seems to be they're building it with Prince Edward County in mind, but it's basically the same sort of ideas, taking this old, all these old, beautiful buildings and making venues and restaurants and nightclubs and event spaces and art galleries and cafes. And, and it's coming together. It's very, very cool. And it, so it's, you're right. It's, it's really amazing to be out in this sort of rural community that's sitting between Ottawa and Toronto um, that always just seems too far away for everybody um, to have this place. Um, and when they first got the very big venue together where they had the line array system and the big stage and um, they actually, they didn't know who to call um, about getting acts. So they called me first, which was really interesting. The woman that started, that was hired to run it called me and said, okay, so we've got this venue and we want to hire I Mother Earth. I've never told the I Mother Earth guys this, but <laughs> they called me and said, we want to hire I Mother Earth for the very first show here. How do we do that? And I said, that's awesome that you want to hire I Mother Earth. We played at the, we had recently played at the Regent Theater. We had done a bunch of theater shows. Um, and the amazing thing, we did all of Ontario. And for some reason, the theater in Prince Edward County was the only one that didn't sell out on the very first day of ticket sales and took till the very show day for it to sell out. Um, and so, and since this new venue is about four times the size of that theater, my response to them was, I don't, you guys want a sold out show for your first show, right? And they they said, yeah, we do. We, we That's why we're trying to get a big band like you guys and you're the only person we know. Um, and so I said, I don't think we're gonna sell it out, but I can tell you who will sell it out is David Wilcox and I can connect you to David Wilcox. Um, and so that's how they started promoting shows. And so I tend to connected them to his tour manager who then connected them to agents and people like that. And they, and I did the first couple shows. So when they booked David Wilcox, my agreement I made with them was, okay, I'm going to introduce him though. And Jeremy Kelly's going to open up for him. <laughs> And all of this stuff. And and it really worked out because they had someone like myself around it. I don't want to take credit for it all, but I was a really good resource where I could say, oh, well, you need to do this and you need to do this for the show. And we're not selling tickets. Oh, well, when we did the other David Wilcox one at the arena, they advertised on the rock radio station in Belleville. Um, so she's like, oh, my gosh. And she shifted so much of the money over to that and then sold out the show. Um, and since then... Once you start doing things like that, it gets a lot easier to get acts to come through because, and I think they've had a lot of staff changes. They've 
hired mostly local people, but the number of amazing acts they get through there now is really remarkable. And they've really got to figure it out. And I think it's just going to keep getting better. Yeah, they caught, like, I'm not even that close to the venue and it caught my attention because every ad I saw, I saw like 10 upcoming shows and all of the artists were like, holy shit, like these are incredible artists. How is this venue I haven't heard of getting these amazing artists? So I'm I'm glad that I asked about Base 31 because I got this story out of you that I didn't know this story existed. So that's cool. Well, there's some amazing people in the county now too, right? Like music people that are starting to get involved. So I, I, I volunteer at a radio station in the county and I have some radio shows. I do Tuesdays four to six. And every once in a while I jump on the Saturday show. I used to do a vinyl show as well. Um, but our chair, our board chair was um, the head of chorus network for quite a while. And that's a great radio station. Uh, one of our DJs regularly does shows with Bernie Finkelstein who lives out here from true North. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. He was like Um, my first ever contact in the music industry. Yeah. He's got the order of Canada and boy, is he brilliant and interesting. And so one of the, every Thursday afternoon, you can basically listen to him on the radio show. Um, Oh my gosh. I always forget his name, but the guy that produced the Woodstock album produced Jimi Hendrix produced uh, David Bowie, produced the Beatles, produced Led Zeppelin. Oh, you Um, told me this name before. Yeah, but anyhow, he lives out in Prince Edward County now as well. And the guy that does the blues radio show on Tuesday evenings just did a two-hour deep dive with him. Sort of in the, I'm stealing your your (laughs) byline there, but it was a two-hour radio show and they did a full-on two-hour deep dive about Jimi Hendrix. And so this is, all happening out. Is that Kramer? Rural community. Something Kramer. Kramer? Yeah. Yep. I always try to remember. I know it's got a name of a guitar in his name somewhere, right? So Kramer guitars. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Eddie for Eddie Van Halen, right? Yeah. So So it's this amazing sort of art and music community. So that's why we're getting all of this. There's the right kind of people are out in the area to make those sort of things happen. So. So you mentioned that you're now a little more rested up, you're physically feeling better in better shape, you've put it out into the ether that hopefully in 2024, there's more writing, producing, performing, I see the salads base right behind you. Uh, is is there a chance that you would get together with members of the salads to write new music? I, I hear rumors of these things. <laughs> yeah, well, we talk online sometimes, because people are always asking us to or there's always a sort of a select few, we don't have a huge fan base anymore. Um, but well, you don't know that until you come out with new stuff and then don't know, but I'm, it gets crazy. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Um, and I really, really miss playing with those guys. Um, and so, yeah, we have been talking, it, it's difficult because we all live really far away from each other now, but we've definitely are starting the conversations. Dave Zimba, who's been the toughest one to to get on board just because he's so busy with his own life. He's not even um, in the country, is he? He's mostly in Florida. Most of the time he's in Florida. Um, but he's really into it and wants to get playing and is sending us messages every once in a while. Let's just do something crazy and stuff. And we and so it's it's really it's just been Grant, Dave, and I talking a lot about just writing some nonsensical just amazing fun music we're talking about doing stuff that sort of mixes what like the aristocrats or 
Scott Henderson sort of like rock jazz fusion does, but then do it with metal. And so we're talking about doing that sort of stuff and we'll see what happens. We just want to do some really kick-ass music together because we know we're very capable and it's just getting, getting together and doing it. And we want to do it in a way that it, we're not thinking about pop songs anymore or what are the four chords that you hear on the radio every five minutes let's we better play those or we just want to go out and just make it as nutty as possible and just do music for ourselves so yeah we do want to go out and make some music so even though it's members of the salads this isn't necessarily writing for future salads music no i don't think it would be yeah Okay. I know um, Darren Pfeiffer is really into it all the time. He's always saying, if if you guys are doing it, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. I want to do it. Um, Pfeiffer actually played in Fishbone. I think, was it last night or the night before? It was for some event celebrating, some event in Hollywood where they were celebrating the life of HR from Bad Brains. Um, and so for some reason, I, well, Darren's from Goldfinger, and also played in the Dickies and and bands like that. And um, he's one of our Salads members, but he was playing with Fishbone. He did two out of three songs. The other drummer at the gig was Dave Lombardo from Slayer, which is amazing. Yeah. And then he he posted some video because Sublime were there playing as well, but with a different singer. I can't remember who was singing, but it's really good. It, the guy sounds a lot like Bradley too, and was shirtless and covered in tattoos. I just like, saw I just saw a post. Yeah. So Bradley is the singer that passed away, right? Yep. So I just saw that Bradley's son is now the age where he's been spotted playing with Sublime. So I don't know if it's Bradley's son. Oh, maybe son that's, that's who it was. Oh my gosh. Okay. So maybe that's who it was. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that for sure, but I saw a post going viral showing that he's the son is now grown up and doing gigs with with the band. So it might be him. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. It's really funny how that happens. So I said that I produced that music with my son um for that for that docuseries this year and uh so he's he's in his very last year of high school trying to figure out what to do next year for school um since he's gotten really into music he started considering different music schools and and things like that and then he started thinking about the mi the music industry arts program which i was like oh my gosh that's dan broadbeck runs that who produced all salads records and and um and so we went down and did a tour of the school and i found out that one of the other teachers there is mo berg from pursuit of happiness who would be an excellent guest on your show as well by the way um (laughs) what a musical amazing musical cool guy um but it's such a small world and these sort of things happen seem to happen real quick right like we saw Taylor Hawkins' son play with Foo Fighters, which was incredible. And he's like, it's like watching Taylor. And so now my son's doing all this music stuff and it looks like he's going to be going to MIA MIA to learn production from Dan Broadbeck, who's, that's basically how I learned production as well, was working with Dan. Um, And the crazy part is, is that Mo Berg is a teacher at the school. The Salads had Mo Berg in our video for the song Growing Up. Um, because his biggest song is I'm an adult now. And so we made Mo Berg into an old man for the video. The funny thing is he looks now like he did when we did him up as an old man in our video. He's grown um, into the role. He's grown into the role. And my son that 
if he gets accepted to MIA, mind you, he's still applying and stuff like that. Um, and if he studies with Mo, then Mo's going to meet the baby that was in my wife's womb in the rock video with Mo. So Mo, we had him selling hot dogs at a hot dog stand in the video as one of his characters. And my wife is buying the hot dog with Andrew and her belly. And now he's going to go study production full circle here with Mo. Right. It's, it's just wild. Right. Yeah. So uh, you were saying it's cool how, you know, the kids of these rock stars grow up and, and they're able to, you know, join the bands or perform with the bands or perform with their dad. Uh, that that happens with uh, Van Halen that we're going to talk about. Right. Doesn't the son Wolfgang at some point end up in Van Halen? Oh, yeah, of course. He was the bass player. Oh, yeah. There's so many great people. Derek Trucks is one of those people. It's it's hard for it not. Oh, that's what I've realized is even though we only started buying my son instruments a couple years ago, we've been sort of talking about guitars he loves. And um, he told me the other day that he loves black. He was describing um, David, one of David Wilcox's guitars that I spent probably a year working on and trying to make it sound really good. But Andrew would have been, I don't know, 10 years old, eight years old, maybe when I was doing that. And he's remembering this guitar in the living room as being the coolest thing he's ever seen. All right. So it's, it's just, and me playing it and what it sounded like and, yeah, he's very aware of how it all works and they kind of have a head start, right? On the joy that it brings us all anyways. Just through osmosis of being there, hearing you perform, seeing you with other musicians, probably hearing you play music there. He's just absorbing all of this. So I, I got that families, with my dad right? as well. Yeah, yeah. It can be in families. I posted Phil talking about Van Halen and families and music and stuff. I posted Phil X who plays in Ban- Bon Jovi now. Um and uh, he actually replaced replaced all my bass playing on a something I did with Neil Sanderson recently too. I found out, but I took it as a flattering. I was like, oh, if I'm going to get replaced by anybody, Phil X, that's pretty cool. He could do um, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Phil um, is from Ontario. He's from Toronto, um, and he posted a thing playing one of Eddie's hardest guitar solos. Um, yesterday that is just mind-blowing awesome and he does it with the same kind of joy that Eddie does when he finishes he's just ah! like yelling and stuff like that um, Phil is unbelievably great um, and I went to Humber College for music where I went to school with Jeremy um, and I went one of my best friends at school was Anesti um, who is Phil's cousin and and Anesti plays just like Phil. And he was in school like two or three years early. He was at Humber College for guitar when he was 16 years old and could just rip, like rip, rip, rip. Um, and I found out that those guys all grew up playing bazookis, so, so playing Greek music, so playing these Greek guitars where it's all really, really quick, amazing music and super hard to play and i guess what we're seeing is that that sort of family base in music and greek bazooki music translates really well into being able to play guitar like eddie van Halen. <laughs> so because an sd is that same sort of way where he can mimic people really really well and it sounds like it's just on fire 
right? And that's just a big family full of musicians. When I was a kid, we used to play shows with um, Alex Lifeson's son because I grew up in Aurora and that's where Alex was living. And his son lived in town there and played in bands. And yeah, I don't know. It just seems to be the Good Brothers grew up in Aurora and it, they helped to make it seem, rock stardom seem um, within reach because the tour bus was always parked outside their house and and that and their kids were Dallas good, right? And, and Travis good and, and who are this 80s now, right? And are just amazing. So yeah. I don't know. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Runs it runs in the family. Absolutely. Uh yeah, most of the musicians that I talk to on here, it's it's from growing up and having musical parents, whether it's musicians that are whether it's parents that were actual musicians or just parents that were music lovers always playing music. That kind of that's always the earliest memory that uh, most of these musicians have. Oh yeah, if your parents are big music lovers, I, I taught guitar for years and years and years, and I, like I had students, guys from the Arkells, guys from the Flatliners were my students. Serial Joe were my students. I had a lot of students become big rock stars, um, and one of and I taught hundreds and hundreds of kids. And my very first lessons I would do with people was I would just see if they could tap in time with music, put some music on, just tap along. So I'd find out if they have a sense of rhythm. And sometimes people had no idea how to tap along to it, had no sense of rhythm. And then I would try to see if they could recognize melody. So I'd play something and then I'd turn my back so they couldn't see if I was playing the same thing. Tell me if I play the exact same thing again, right? So maybe just even three notes, do da da, and then do it again, do da da. And I go, oh no, that was different. It's like, oh wow, you can't hear that. Um, and so then the next stage would always be my curiosity is going out into the reception area um, of the music school and finding the kids' parents and asking if they listen to music at home. Like, do you guys listen to a lot of music? Actually, we don't listen to any music. And that's why we thought it would be really good for him to have some music lessons. And I'm like, oh my gosh. It's, so you, you really learn that um, put music on. <laughs> in the house or i have no idea what people are hearing when they if they don't hear melody and they don't hear rhythm those are those dads that we see dancing at weddings that have no rhythm that are just like the elaine dance from seinfeld right where they have no idea like what do you hear when you don't hear melody and rhythm it just must be a mush of noise and poetry right like so. Just just the other day, I was at a friend's to watch a, an Ottawa Senators game and he brought over a neighbor. So I'm meeting this guy for the first time and he's asking about the podcast. And then I said, oh, you know, who are your favorite artists? You know, it, it, whenever people share that, then it gives me kind of incentive to maybe try to get these artists as guests on the podcast. And he's like, oh, I don't listen to music. I'm like, you don't have like a favorite artist or album or songs you like he's like nope like music was dead to him and you're like how do these people exist it's crazy oh it's so crazy yeah yeah that seems wild to me because it's food for the soul right like yeah what a thing that, to miss. that's why they're dead inside no i'm joking uh so <laughs> so let's dive into your five favorite albums um do you do you know all five off the top of your head to just list the well, five you, and then... it's funny when you asked me that question i didn't really give it any thought I, at first I said, I need some time to think about this, but then I, my thinking about it was seeing your email message there going, Oh, I need to respond to him. And so I didn't, I just wrote out 
So it's just five albums that you love out of like your 50 favorite albums, essentially. But they're definitely like in the top. Like, and, and it's funny, I was going to go, I move a lot. My family moves a lot. This house I'm in is new. I've only just recently built this room. Um, and yes, two of those albums, I was going to go grab them off my record shelf, but then realized they're still sitting in frames in storage and I haven't moved them out of the, that box yet. Um, so I know two of the records on that um, are Van Halen 1984 and David Lee Roth, Eat Him and Smile. And both of those I had in frames that always sit beside my desk. Um, and then the other ones, uh, I think I may have got the album name wrong. It was either Medicine Man or Medicine Music. Yeah. So Bob Bobby McFerrin, Medicine Music. Which I've been listening to since I was probably 16 years old. Um, and then... We mentioned Fishbone already. so Oh, yeah. Fishbone real- Reality of My Surroundings is in there. That one's just stuck with me my whole life. Um, and then there's a metal album in there. Oh, Helmet. Meantime, of course. Yeah. There so we go. There for sure. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I was as I was going through my vinyl just before getting on this call with you, I was like, oh, and I'm pulling out other records. Maybe this is in my top five. And I... I pulled out the Cult Electric and I thought this one's probably up there. And I pulled out Huey Lewis and the News, um, the sports, sports album. And I said, yeah, that's funny you guess that. But that one's another one that's always been in a frame. And some of these records I have multiple copies of. And, and then I would have them on tape. And then when the CDs came out, I bought them on CDs. And you know, it's funny yeah. is I, I was able to guess the Huey Lewis and the News album because of your 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 band member, Darren from the Salads. Uh, so I recently had. Oh, he sang, he sings like Huey Lewis. There's a reason why that is. Oh, they were in that cover band, too. Yeah. Um, yeah well, there's a reason we hired Darren Dumas, and it's because he reminded us of David Lee Roth and Huey Lewis. Okay. Right? So- so yeah. I had I had the drummer from Breaking Benjamin, um, Chad Zaliga on. He shared his five favorite albums and he took the greatest hits album from Huey Lewis and the News. So I actually reached out to Darren from the Salads because I knew he's a huge fan just to get in, more info about Huey Lewis and the News. And he goes, oh, you know, the, taking the greatest hits is kind of a cop out. He goes, sports is their best album. And that's what I had in my head when when <laughs> I guess the album you were going to say. Is- I had an amazing moment with sports. And that you, this is something any of us that grew up in that time. So I'm 49 now. So I was like, perfect, because I was like, 13 years old when that record came out and it, and it's like those Van Halen records and stuff. It was all promoted to us back in the day, sort of like the way that um, Pokemon is promoted to kids now where you could buy bubble stickers for the bands and things like that. But um, the Huey Lewis one is the music is so complicated on that where they're full of these long melodic sax solos and stuff. And I was at a party once um with Darren in the salads and then our our friend Jacob I remember Jacob was there there were a couple other dudes there but somebody had Huey Lewis on and as in the sports album and as it was approaching I'm really bad with song titles but I could sing the sax solo and as it was coming up I said to everybody in the room I go hey everybody sing this sax solo that's coming up and the entire room did it and i was like this is amazing all right like we all it's it we all have this ingrained in our brains and it's so complicated 
and hard to play and and it's not a simple melody but we all know it perfectly right so that's yeah so there's so, always there's always a disclaimer. Uh, all all the guests that have come back on to do the my five favorite albums series, they all tell me, look, I'll choose five albums that I really love, but I can't say for sure they're my exact five favorite because I have twenty favorites or thirty favorites. So I always have to disclaimer up front. We're gonna go through five of your favorite albums, and at the end, we'll do an honorable mention. So, if you throw the Cure in, if you throw in uh, Huey Lewis in the news, I'm sure there's lots of albums that just will come to mind that you rapid fire through. So, I have to let everyone know that on if I asked you tomorrow to give me five favorite albums, it might be a different list than the ones we're gonna go through. Might be slightly different. Yeah, it's hard because they. I I think my list is pretty accurate for me though because I've most of those I've framed or I have listened to almost my entire or ever since they came out and they've never ever gotten off my playlist so so what let's wanna... let's go through them so let's start here with Van Halen the album is 1984 uh rumor has it this was a gift you received as a teenager can you share that story <laughs> that gets us started me. yes I hear rumors I need to fact check yeah so I would have been it's when it came out so I'd I would have been in grade two or three, something like that. And I was playing basketball out in my front yard in Markham on my driveway. And my friend at the time, I can't remember his last name. I remember his first name was Dave. Um, these are the Daves I know. And he showed up on his bicycle. He had one of those, um, it looked like a motorbike, but it was just a bicycle. Do you remember those? They have great big shocks and big seats. And he showed up on that um, with a wrapped album and that album was van halen 1984 it came out in 1983 and so i got it for my birthday in april of 1983 and unwrapped it and was instantly struck by the album cover which is amazing which is that painting of a little boy with angel wings smoking a cigarette right um and then the band on the back looks really cool you pull out the insert and what i remember from the insert is the insert picture is actually put in upside down and they're all sweaty and look weird when you pull it out that way. Um, but also then you take it in the house and stick it on your record player in your bedroom. Um, prior to this album, all hard rock was guitars, right? You'd get some keys on a lot of seventies records and things like that, but not heavy synthesizers. Right. And and the very first track on that is 1980, the tune 1984. And back in that era, 1984 was something we were all leading up to. It was sort of like 2000, like the year 2000, 1984 was the future is coming. Um, maybe because of George Orwell's book, who knows? Um but you put on that and that maybe from that Van Halen record, because you put the needle on that very first tune and it's just all synth. I, it, I'm it's just sure a one it, minute intro, right? Of just this futuristic sounding space music. Right. And I remember calling my brothers into the room. I have two brothers and going, listen to this. This is the future. Future um, man. Yeah. And then it kicks into um, jump and then goes into Panama and it, it's just such a perfectly laid out record as well. Side B, you flip it over and the very first track is hot for teacher. Um, and so you put the needle down on that and you get that 
insane drum intro. Um, but then the other thing that makes this record especially cool, I think, um, and like all Van Halen records, they're when you're a Van Halen fan like myself or any hardcore Van, all of the songs are hits. Every single song is a hit. You listen to the whole record. There's not like they have their singles, but really, you know, all of them. Um, and Van Halen's aware of that. I know that because when you go see them play, they'll start with songs like Romeo Delight that were never singles, but the crowd goes insane, and including me crying and making eye contact with Eddie as he's playing it. And and uh, the cool thing about the ends of 1984 on both of those is they put mean sounding songs as the last tracks. So Van Halen stuff. Yeah, Van Halen records. You know, people might say they like women and children first that record because it's a lot heavier and mean sounding. And same with Fair Warning is a very mean sounding record. But also these records have these goofy like swing songs or um, like disco tunes on them or like really strange oddball stuff, um, which is part of the reason I begged these guys to put an acoustic country song that we recorded on their record. Cause I said, if Van Halen can do it, you can do it. And you know what? They didn't put it on the record. <laughs> so the standstills in my mind, the very best song they wrote for the isn't on the record. Who knows what's going on with it, but it's, it's totally never been cool. released. Like you can't find never it. Never been released. So bug them about it because it is awesome. I'll spill the beans on part of it because whatever renee sings on it it's now okay i'm intrigued with this and she is so good she's the way she looks her sort of rock attitude it all comes out in her voice but anyways van halen records are full of that stuff um i think the 1984 record is like an all-encompassing van halen record where it's full of all this sort of party rock um but everybody gets featured on the album and then it's that introduction of all the synth stuff. And it's it's just so awesome and so good. And for me, it was my real introduction to Van Halen was listening to that record. I have a dear friend um, that we debate about, Sammy and David Lee Roth all the time. Um, Johnny Fiasco movie guy is what we call him. Um, but he talks about when the first album he can remember the day, the very first Van Halen record came out. And if you get guests that are maybe a couple years older than me, that's their memory of Van Halen. So I don't know if they would ever say 1984 is their best record because they all have these memories of showing up to high school and everybody is playing eruption in their car full blast, like everywhere you went. Um, but for me, that moment was definitely 1984, hearing those futuristic synths um, and then jumping straight into Jump and then all of the drum solos. And it's just such a beautiful record. And it's too short. It's really, really short. Yeah, it's you know? it's there's nine songs, but we mentioned the first song is a one minute intro. So there's really eight songs and four of them were legit massive radio hits. So Jump, I'll Wait, Panama, and Hot for Teacher, you mentioned those already. Um, I did a a past episode, my five favorite albums with the uh, original drummer from Stain, John Wysocki, and he chose the, the first 
Van Halen album, like you said. So I did a deep dive on that. And he was talking about Eruption came out and people didn't know if a human actually played that, if that was studio wizardry, was it like a robot? And it just changed guitar, right? The two hand tapping. Yeah. Yeah. Just his hands. Yeah. So he's, he's probably a couple of years older than me then. Probably. Yeah. To have a memory like that. Yeah. Cause that, that was very life-changing for a lot of people. So you kind of have a, a, a book end of the two. So that was the first studio album from them. And this is the sixth and the last one until they did another album in like 2012. It's this is the last one with David Lee Roth. And then there's the Sammy yep. Hagar years. Um, and the first one we're talking about and this one both went diamond in the US. So it's Van Halen is only one of six bands, period, in human history to have not one but two diamond albums. It's like impossible for a band to have one and they have two. I so one fifty was their biggest selling record. Nope. So it was uh, either the debut or or this one. They both oh, went interesting. They okay. both went diamond and then globally it's normally double that. So I would say each of those probably sold 15 to 20 million total globally. So And then they're really sad showing with the singer from Extreme. They made that one record and sold 300,000 copies or something. Which is good for other bands, but not for them. Oh, it was pitiful for them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Let's uh, let's jump into a few of the songs specifically. So let's just dive into the first single, uh, Jump. So that's the lead single. And even to today, that's the band's first and only number one single on the Billboard Top 100, which is crazy. You think of how many albums they've sold and how much success. But, uh, you know, most of the other songs are rock, like they're pretty heavy. So it's hard to cross over to just mainstream Top 100 to be a number one hit. But you mentioned Jump had that synth which kind of opened up a new market and had a little bit more pop element to it. Well, yeah, well, Van Halen always swings, right? And David Lee Roth talks about that, how he's more of a disco dancer and singer and sort of you put the swing that that band does in line with a guy that loves to dance and party like him. And it's just going to gravitate to so many people um, and then will likely be timeless. I think Eddie Van Halen says the jump is his favorite Van Halen song just because it had the most success as well. And it's, yeah, it's still so awesome and fun to play. And there's so much fun stuff to listen to in that song, even production wise, anybody goes back to that, pay attention to the snare drums and the kick drums in the song, because the production is really interesting. Whereas I can't off the top of my head without listening to it. There's something bizarre about it where there's like no kick drum in the verses and then it's really loud in the choruses it might be the snare drum but it's there's some really interesting production stuff in that song as well but yeah Yeah, i I think there's there's some production stuff on the album where instead of actual bass they have like a synth bass like there's little things that are different on there. oh yeah we're yeah because i was watching a thing recently where michael anthony is playing the bass line to to jump he's playing the other part but he's doing it on a keyboard which i was surprised about i didn't know that he did that so yeah it's really cool yeah they were sort of integrating keyboards for the first time and then i guess the record after that they really laid on it like 5150 they really leaned into it um so that would be the first sammy hagar record then it's the first one with sammy right whereas um you go to the other one that's on your list which we'll talk about at the end i think um which David Lee Roth came out with after that, which is the opposite direction. It's just full on guitar, bass, drum record, right? So, 
So I was, I was checking out the, the, the lyrics and the subject matter for jump. And it's, you know, it's like a, a positive uplifting song, like, Hey, you know, you have one life, you might as well jump, like just jump into it. And, uh, <laughs> David Lee Roth says that the original idea and the lyrics was he, he saw this, uh, he was watching TV and on the news, there was footage of a guy that was kind of waffling about committing suicide and jumping out of a building. So you just see this guy not quite sure if he's going to jump or not. And it just made him think that like the people that were actually there in person watching this guy, he thought maybe someone would probably want to be yelling out like, Hey man, you might as well just jump. And uh, <laughs> so he had that line. So he mentioned to the producer and to the band, I have this idea and they love kind of the hook line, but they didn't like that. It would be a song about suicide. Yeah, so you might as well kill yourself. Yeah. yeah. So they, they kept the line of, Hey, you might as well jump, but they switched it from suicide to like an uplifting and up into life. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Cause the theme is exactly, the Salads did a cover of Kiss's song Lick It Up, which is around the same time, I think, and, um, and was changing for them. But it's exactly the same theme. When we recorded it, I was really taken aback by the lyrics and Lick It Up because I became a massive fan because I was like, this is so amazing. These lyrics are amazing because what does Paul Stanley say? There, there is no crime in being good to yourself. Now lick it up. All right. Like. Because as a kid, I always heard it as they're perverts. I was thinking about Gene Simmons' tongue, you know, lick it up. And now I realize, oh, he's actually saying, live it up, right? Like, and that's exactly what jump is, right? Like, jump into life, lick up life, right? So... So I have a few accolades for that song, and then we'll move on to a different one. So uh, Rolling Stone has Jump at number 177 on its list of 500 greatest songs of all time. Uh, Jump was ranked number 15 on VH1's 100 greatest songs of the 80s. Uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum has it as one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Uh, Jump was nominated for a Grammy Award. And one thing that's cool, we're talking about... Uh, uh, David Lee Roth and Sammy Hager. Uh, this is one of the only songs that Sammy would sing uh, when he was a part of the band. So he loved the song enough that he would sing it despite it being a different singer. <laughs> well, you got to play that song. <laughs> Apparently he didn't sing the other hits. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I've seen him sing a lot of good stuff, but it'll be interesting to see what they do with Joe Satriani. It, it, you know, I'm a huge Joe Satriani fan, but I'm, in tune with most other people out there. I wish they had, I know they're doing it because they're all buddies and Joe is part of chicken foot and stuff like that. But if you're going to go out and celebrate Van Halen, get a guy like Phil X or get a guy like, wait, wait, are you saying that, are you saying that Van Halen is going to be touring again, but with different musicians? Is that what you're saying? Yes. See, I wasn't in the loop. So what, what's the deal? What's going on? It's they're doing a Van Halen sort of tribute um that's sammy hagar this just came out like a week ago that's sammy hagar and michael anthony um and they asked alex van halen to do it and alex said no um so john bonham is doing it or jason bonham is doing it and then um and they got joe satriani to play guitar for it um and then they went on the howard stern show um I think before Eddie had really, I mean, sorry, before Joe had really had a chance to sit down and learn a lot of these things. Um, and then they were asking questions about some really unique things that Eddie does and asking, and then Joe would try to do it. 
And for us in the guitar world that are huge Eddie fans, we're all like, what's happening? Why doesn't Joe know how to play this right? And and even though Joe is like one of the greatest of all time and has built a better guitar career than almost anybody in history, I don't know if he's the right guy to play Eddie Van Halen tunes, right? Like there's a certain type of fire that a guy like Phil X has that's there, or these guys that have obsessed over it their entire life, like a Nuno Betancourt that just kind of do it in a better way, but I'm sure it'll be fun. I'm sure it'll be fun. I would just rather have see someone that is an insanely huge Eddie fan go and do it. Right. But yeah. Do you, do you think you'll grab a ticket if it comes to town or. I'm such a purist. It's hard for me to say. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Like you... I didn't, I didn't want to go see them Wolf, with Wolfgang. Cause I had so badly was well, where's Michael Anthony. This isn't Van Halen. Um, but then I did go and see them and it was awesome. I have a random Wolfgang story. So I just went to Montreal for the Metallica two night weekend um, for the recent tour. So it was um, Mammoth VH. So it was Mammoth VH opening and then it was Pantera and then it was Metallica. And I kept yep. seeing this Mammoth VH everywhere. And I'm like, why is this band getting such a push? And they're on the biggest tours and there's all this hype. And I'm watching and it's like this incredible guitarist, all this stuff. I didn't know that Mammoth VH, VH is for Van Halen and it's Wolfgang Van Halen is, it's his solo career is under that band name. I didn't know that till after I saw them. (laughs) So I'm out of the loop. That's wild. So you're just like, why is this guy so big? Yeah, I was like, why is like, why does every why do the biggest bands in the world like Metallica take this random band on tour? Like, why is there all this hype? And then I watch I'm like, this guy's like an incredible guitarist and singer. And then I find out the VH stands for Van Halen. I'm like, oh, I can't believe I didn't know this. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Eddie talked about him all the time. You know, pay attention to him. He's so great, but he's doing his own thing. Really, really listen. And I think that big song that's about his dad, I don't know if you've seen the, there's a video for it too. That's, it's such a beautiful tune. I can't remember what it's called. It's a mammoth song. That's all about Eddie. Um, That he, he apparently played it for Eddie when Eddie was in the hospital and Eddie loves it, but never really caught on that. It was about him and his dad and their relationship. And it's, I think the lyric is no matter where I go, I know you're with me sort of thing and it's and it's so beautiful and it, that video is so hard to watch because it just shows them growing up together and then eddie going i love you buddy to tim and just the connection they had on stage together and yeah they're living the dream you know a, i've always thought that my mother earth was like the canadian van halen in a sense where it's the two brothers right and and then the and then jag is this great great guitar player this great shedding, unique guitar player. Um, and then it's amazing because Jag's son, Jackson, um, is becoming an incredible musician as well. And so th- when I quit the band, I was like, I wonder who they're going to get. And I remember thinking, I wonder if they'll get Jackson to play bass. All right. Just like, just like uh, Wolfgang and Van Halen, mm-hmm. but I guess they weren't ready. And they, they, they got Joe Barlow, who was our guitar tech and Joe's a great musician. Um, and he started taking over the bass duties, but, it, but I'm, I'm hoping one day that I'll see Jackson doing it too. 
So <laughs> I have a, a couple random things about the song Panama that I thought were cool. So despite the name, it's not about the country. Apparently there's a car called the Panama Express that uh, oh. David David Lee Roth saw when he was in Las Vegas. That makes and sense with the bridge of the song, right? I with the rumbling car in there. Yeah. Yeah. So they said that that's actually uh, Eddie Van Halen's Lamborghini. They backed up to the front of the studio and they ran microphones out to the exhaust. So that's yep. that's that's his uh, Lamborghini. No, I know. I've heard that story, too. Yeah. Yeah. He always loved cool cars. Yeah. And to keep going with the car, uh, I thought this was actually really funny. So Roth wrote the song after being accused by a reporter of singing about only women partying and fast cars. And it made him realize he hadn't written a song about fast cars. Yeah, I was <laughs> so, going to say there are no fast car songs. Yeah. Yeah. So then he wrote Panama so that he actually, what they accused him of, he, it was actually true after he wrote that song. <laughs> Just in time before Sammy joined the band and they played, I can't drive 55. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Apparently, so I, I mentioned this to you um, before the interview that all these years I've heard that the song Jump was so influential because before Jump, there was the weird like disco phase and, and dance phase and and so, and then suddenly there's jump that bridges the gap of the danceable stuff with the synthesizer, but also the rock of, you know, the hard rock of Van Halen. And it was like the perfect, like bite-sized middle between both that everyone was able to get into that then led everything away from disco and back into rock. I like, I've heard that that is like the one and it goes diamond, right? It's like as big as you can get that that is the turning point that shifted away from one genre into the genre after that. Um, did, oh, I believe it, yeah. did you ever hear anything like that? I, I don't know where I heard this. It's just something that's been ingrained in me since I grew up hearing that it was a, a turning point in the music industry. Well, I know for myself, even the way I described it, when I put the needle on that record for the first time, the very first thing you hear are these futuristic synths and it made my brain explode. And I had to call my brothers in the room. This is the future. And so right away, I had our, like from the very first couple seconds of listening, this is the future of music was what I had in my mind. Um, and so, yeah, for sure. And the thing, you know, and I've said it already, but the the sort of mix of genres like that is, I think, what makes them so timeless as well. And um, I don't know, there was at that time, there was a big um, movement of synthesizer music happening, but not with those amazing shredding guitars, right? And then everybody did it, right? You get like the final countdown and stuff like that. You can even say Honeymoon Suite because it's full of synthesizers, right? And mm -hmm. and then all of even the Kim Mitchell stuff all of a sudden filled up with synthesizers. And But that was, that was a huge turning point because it's really dancey as well. Yeah, it's so good. So apparently in the lead up to writing and recording this album, Eddie Van Halen was already playing around with synthesizers and the producer, Ted Templeton and David Lee Roth hated it. And it was two against one. And he, I guess he felt dejected that they didn't want the synthesizer. And at that time he was building his own home studio and 
it was going to be a while before it was operational. So he's just in the studio that's not operational with the synthesizer and he was alone and he just was playing around with it and ended up writing most of the stuff for this album, 1984. And because he was alone, there wasn't the other two guys telling him that you shouldn't be using the synthesizer. And by the time he presented the songs that were so fleshed out and undeniable, they they got on board with it. So apparently it's how you do it. Yeah, apparently it was him kind of just secluded that that came up with this sound to the point where people could believe into believe in it because he had fleshed it out so much. I bet that was pretty intentional on his part, just because it's making me think of the moments with um, the salads when we're making this record, the big picture record. There are things I wanted to hear on the record that I was having trouble getting people to agree to or to hear what I was hearing in my head. And um I was the one guy in the band that didn't drink a lot at the time. We were living in London recording with Dan Broadback at Emac Studios. And so what I would do to get these parts on the record, because I knew Dan would be there very early in the morning editing, is I would get up nice and early and get myself to the studio by myself and say, hey, I've got this idea. Can we just try it? And then we would do it and hash it out and get through the whole thing, um, record it all. And by the time the other guys show up, you're like, hey, check out this part. And so it's done. And it's and then maybe it's just they've got an idea to add to it or expand on it. But it's no longer me fighting for that idea. I've already created it. And it's here it is. Right. And that's what made me think of. I bet that's what Eddie was doing. He's like, I'm just going to do it. Screw these guys. Right. Yeah. And everything worked out in the end. I have uh, I have two more things about this album, then we'll move on to the next one. Uh, I had mentioned before that the album went diamond. It's their second album to go diamond. But it, it actually, the album had legs because it went diamond 15 years after it was released. So in 1999, oh, wow. it finally went diamond. So it just showed that the popularity continued until 15 years later, it went diamond. And then one other thing I thought was cool is despite the album being massive, 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 it never went to number one. It was stuck at number two. I think it was for five weeks. Uh, I'll double check. Oh, I yes. can't believe that they didn't go to number one. So wow. it, it was stuck at number two for five weeks and you want to know why? Because the biggest album of all time was, was it Michael one. Jackson, Michael, Michael Jackson thriller held it out for five weeks. I was going to so. say it was probably Michael Jackson was making that impossible. Yeah. yeah, literally any other time in human history would have gone to number one, except it was out at the exact same time as the biggest album in human history that held it at number Which two. Which Eddie Van Halen played guitar on, too. Yeah, he, he's on Beat It. Yep. So I guess technically he was number one and number two for a while. Yep, he was. <laughs> That's so cool. And the last thing I want to ask you about that is uh, I think you, you've you seen Van Halen live. Yeah, a couple of times. Yeah. In what like in what renditions of the band? I'm just curious. I've never seen them. And I feel like the musicianship would be mind blowing. I'm wondering what it was like at a Van Halen concert. Well, I mentioned that I made eye contact and cried. Right. So that was. That was the coolest show. I've taken my son to to see them and we've had lawn seats and stuff like that. But it, but um, there was a show they played um, in London, Ontario um, that was general admission, which was so amazing. It was outdoors and it was general admission and it was with David Lee Roth. It was when they were back out touring with Roth um, and my good friend Dennis 
gave me a ticket. I have an extra ticket. You want to come? And so I, I went along. And then when we got there, I'm not the type of person to push through a crowd to get to the front. But my friend, my good friend and one of Jerry Finn's best friends and maybe the biggest Van Halen fan I know, he's got this unbelievable collection of backstage passes and even checks written to managers. He's got this, he could open a museum. Um, so Greg was up standing up against the gates waiting for the show to start standing right in front of where Eddie was going to come out. And he started texting me and just bold letters front row Van Halen come here regret forever be here now come just push your way and so with with Dennis and myself I said you know what I've got to go Greg's right we've got to do this and we pushed our way through and had people yelling at us and getting mad but we got our way right up to the very front right out in front of Eddie and it was right before the show started and Greg turns to me and he goes you ready here we go woo 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 Oh, and that's exactly how it started was it just comes out with Eddie just making noises on his guitar. Um, and they started with the tune Romeo Delight, that I believe is off a of diver down. It's such a heavy, awesome tune. Um, and Eddie started playing that and Greg and Dennis and myself all standing in a row going crazy screaming. I have pictures of it somewhere. Um, the three of us all started crying like watching Eddie play this and he's got this huge smile on his face. And, and then he looked over and he saw the three of us standing there, like grown men all crying and laughing. And, and he just, he winked and and kept on sort of laughing and smiling the whole time. And it was awesome. It was great. He played awesome to, to stand up that close and get a chance was amazing. One of my, life goals, something I'd been trying to manifest my whole life was to jam with Eddie Van Halen one day. Um, and I, I do feel like I, I was getting closer, you know, unfortunately he passed away. But um, so when I did, uh, when I did this tour, actually, it was this tour, because that's 2016. We actually, um, our guitar tech on the tour was Lonnie Topman, who was Eddie Van Halen's guitar tech. And so that so I was close enough in that sense where I'm sitting on a tour bus with one of Eddie's main people. Um, and he's telling us all these great Eddie stories about working with that over the years. And, and then I found out that the road cases that we we're using on that tour were also, also used to all belong to Eddie as well. Um, and Eddie also gifted Jag a guitar. I found out for the very first time of their earth record that they made he gave Jag one of the the Eddie Van Halen signature guitars at the time. I think it was when he was with PV, but the Wolfgang guitars um, gave one to Jag and then called him one day. And, it, and it, Jag has told me that's one of his biggest regrets. I may have told you the story before, but Eddie called him one day, says, hey, is this Jag? And was, yeah, this is Eddie. I just want to know how you like the guitar. Jag um, told me this story. I hope I remember this correctly, but he ran into the other room because it freaked him out so bad and he hid behind a chair on the telephone and sat on the ground and was so nervous and um eddie started asking him about the record and how's the guitar sound and things like that and jagas told me my his biggest regret was because he was so nervous that eddie was asking to come and hang out in the studio and listen to the album and hear what they were working on and jag said no 
because he was too nervous and he was and he didn't feel like it was ready yet. And it's one of his biggest regrets. And so I got really close by playing with the I'm Mother Earth guys. I got I almost got there, you know, where I was playing um, guitars with the guy who Eddie was calling, you know, on the telephone. So and I and I think they invited him to. Um, I think Lonnie uh, let Jag sit behind Eddie's cabinets when they did Canada Day at Molson Park up in Barrie one year as well, because I remember Jag telling me that story. So I feel like I got kind of close, you know, but. Yeah, you were just one person away with both Jag and then with the uh, the guitar tech. So Oh, and he was the greatest guitar tech. He'd set my guitar up to play like I've never had it play before. Hmm. It was excellent. What a great guitar tech, so. This episode has been brought to you by the Women in the Music Industry podcast. It's hosted by music producer Rob Wells, who has worked with global superstars like Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, and Selena Gomez. Through his one-hour interviews, he shines a spotlight on the remarkable women who are breaking barriers and making their mark in the music industry. Some of his notable guests include Morgan Lander of the multi-million selling metal band Kitty, and Pam Shane, who co-wrote Genie in a Bottle for Christina Aguilera. If you're a fan of the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, you'll love the Women in the Music Industry Podcast, which is available on all platforms. Let's dive into the next album here. So Helmet, the album is Meantime, comes out in 1992. Uh, why does this album mean so much to you? I'm going to be honest. I had heard of the band Helmet. I hadn't heard a single song from the band before. So I listened to the album in its entirety. Yeah, I listened to the album in its entirety. It is awesome. It is heavy. It is badass. You can hear the influence that it would have on all these metal where do you metal, think the came from? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So can you can you share uh, why this album means so much to you? That, uh, well, that one in particular, well, this that one came out. So it was, you said 1990, right? 92. The, 92. So that came out still when prior to grunge rock really taken over, right? Like well, nine, 91 was Nevermind. So that's the peak of grunge. But then 94, well, very, 94 yeah. is Corn's debut that starts technically new metal. So it was be two years prior to Corn blowing up. And you know who played guitar on that first Corn record is the is Paige Hamilton from Helmet. And so it, it's <laughs> and the Paige influence. also played with um David Bowie after Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um Paige Hamilton is this remarkable musician in Helmet who I've always wondered about his guitar solos. My educated guess on that is because he's a Juilliard classically trained musician as well. Um, my guess on that is that he's intentionally playing every single note that's out of key to create an intense amount of tension. And so that at the end of the guitar, it gets released at the end of that because it comes back into key. And so you're creating this, just this tension that makes your teeth grind. And, um, but for me, that, Helmet really came out at a time when a lot of that 80s stuff was like really bubbling over where Poison was really massive still. And I guess that's when Nevermind and then all of those and then everything that followed started to crush that whole music scene, right? And took guitar solos out of music and and things like that and started saying, well, you're better off not knowing how to play very well. And, and, And it stopped being about guitar acrobats and things like that. But Helmet to me 
at a time when I was seeing all these hair metal bands and, and I was a huge white lion fan and poison and Def Leppard and Van Halen. And, um, and then helmet, when I would go see helmet, I was like, Oh my God, all these guys look like they work at the bank. Like they, uh, it was my first time seeing a, a heavy rock band where they all just had short hair and wore t-shirts and didn't seem to care so much about what they look like. And more was like, let's just groove. Let's just freaking groove hard. And it's all that open drop D stuff. Paige Hamilton's married to some famous actor as well. Some famous I think he actor. was dating Winona Ryder at some point. I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's got a really interesting history, um, but it's so groovy and so heavy. That record in particular, when I was living with Grant Taylor from the salads, um, which would have been around 1996. I think I was living with him for a couple of years. We shared a car. I had like a little VW um, Golf that we shared. It was my car, but I shared it with him. Um, and it had the Meantime album stuck in the tape player. And nice. so it was the only record you could, it was the only thing you could listen to in that car. And so it was all any of us ever listened to, right? So it was like you get in that car and that's what you're listening to, right? So we spent many years of that being the only. You're lucky only that that's record. what the album was. It wasn't one where you just tried a new album once and it was a horrible album that got stuck. At least it was like a great album. Oh, it's so awesome, man. And I would, it's the one band I would go to see and just couldn't help myself and would throw myself into the mosh pit and just go absolutely insane and it's so groovy and heavy um i know kevin lyman who ran um warp tour really got it because near the later warp tours he started um what he wanted to do to the tour was he wanted to start mixing um the 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 influential guys from the past with all the new stuff um and so that's when the tours would include helmet um like he had helmet on an entire tour and all the old guys like myself that were on that tour were all racing to go see helmet every single time but all the kids aren't but what kevin lyman was trying to do was try to introduce like this all the music you love it all came from this band and so there's tunes on that that record that have these big melodic heavy chord things that are moving along that nobody was doing at the time um and when i listen to deftones it's just sounds like it just sounds like helmet to me when i listen to corn it sounds like helmet to me when i you know all of most of those kind of heavy drop d bands they sound like helmet to apparently me. there wasn't much drop d before helmet is that true? well there eddie van halen was doing it okay. and same with black sabbath and and um but it wasn't just that record's particularly funny because if you skip through it quickly, almost every song just starts with a big drop D chord. Ja. You go to the next song, ja. you go to the next song, ja. and then it'll start with something else after that. But it's it's really, really focused on that. That's a record that I can I've done it recently where I put it on my I just put it into my recording setup over here just for fun to practice. Um, and I can just play along to the entire record without having to learn anything just because it's so in my head and I've got it figured out how they play like that and how it sounds like that. And so what I work on most of the time now is just trying to 
sound exactly like it, which is where you can play along and you don't even hear yourself anymore because you're so inside of that music that it disappears. So something you do when you're studying music, a really great thing to sort of train yourself for rhythm is you listen to a metronome. I don't know if you've ever tried this and you just clap along with the metronome. If you're bang on enough with that metronome, you won't hear the metronome anymore. You cancel out the sound of the metronome. So you know you've got your rhythm exactly right if all you can hear is your clapping. You no longer can hear the click of the metronome. And it's the same thing when you're learning songs, I learned. I learned that playing with I Mother Earth because Jag wanted it to be exactly like the records. Um, so I would learn that stuff note for note until I couldn't hear myself anymore. But now, like with something like Helmet, I've, it's so ingrained in my in my soul that I can just put it on play long and, I, and it's completely lost inside of it. It's so cool. I love that record. And there's so much of that that the salads have stolen from or borrowed from. There's so many Helmet riffs on salad records from our every single album has Helmet riffs on it. So... So this is the the band's major label debut. So they had an independent album that sold 40,000 copies independently, which is like a huge deal for an independent uh, release. And it started a bidding war. So there's all these major labels after them, after, you know, 91 Nirvana blows up. Everyone's looking for the next Nirvana. Uh, so they 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 signed, they got a $1.2 million uh, advance as a part of this bidding war. Then this album comes out, three singles, unsung in the meantime, and give it. And it it ends up selling over 2 million albums globally over time. So it was a big hit, but it seems like it, it was kind of the album that influenced all these other bands that would go on and, and be bigger than them uh, over time. Oh yeah, it's totally, that's totally the way it is. It's um, there's that amazing movie, Decline of the Western Civilization. Have you ever have you seen that? I don't it's think all about so. oh my gosh, go watch this movie. It's amazing because it's all about the Hollywood scene during the hair metal time and what it is. And they interview Ozzy. You've probably seen clips of it where Ozzy's talking to the camera and he misses the glass with his orange juice when he's pouring orange juice in the morning and, and stuff like that, because he's still hungover and um but the, the point is just the transformation of music during that time and all of that. I can't remember exactly what we were talking about. I got so wrapped up in thinking about that movie. What were we just talking about? I, I was just saying that it did sell 2 million copies, but it was, oh, it, it was kind of yeah. a slow build. It went gold and then globally after years, it sold 2 million. But you could see that they influenced Corn that sold 40 million albums. They influenced Deftones that sold, I don't know, 20 million albums. So it's like, oh, yeah. because of them, all these other bands used So the that's template. what I was going to say is in that decline of the Western civilization, one of the, one of the bands in that movie is the LA Guns, um, which is the birth of Guns N' Roses. It's the birth of Motley Crue. It's the birth. And so the LA Guns in that movie say, we're, we're the, we're the band that, turns people into rock stars, right? Like people come into our band and then they go somewhere else and they become a huge rock star. But we're like a jumping thing. And Fishbone is one of those bands too, right? Where people sort of jump off of what they do and become huge copying them, right? And that's, and that's, uh, I don't know. That That's music though, right? We all borrow. So. Have, have, 
So Helmet has been described as the thinking man's metal band. Do you think that's an accurate description? Do you agree with that? Yeah, this? that's pretty good because it really makes you think hard because um, everything is really purposeful on that record because Pages or all their records, because Page is obviously capable of writing these incredible melodies, um, but he chooses to go ah! most of the time. Um, and I, for me at the time, it was like a rejection of all of that kind of high end singing that everybody was doing where they're trying to hit the highest notes at the peak of the hair metal stuff. Like who can sing the highest here and, and, and uh, sound a certain way. And he's just sort of like, bah! Bah! screw all you guys. Right. Like, but it's really, it's about feeling and attitude and groove. And it's so good. And yeah, there's so much groove metal after that, right? Like, I wonder if there would have been a Limp Biscuit without Helmet. I always wonder if there would have been a Deftones without Helmet or a Corn without Helmet. Like, all of that groove metal that we all play, would there be a Three Days Grace? I don't know. Right? Like, it's it's all of that. With the, sal the salads, definitely wouldn't have sounded like the salads without Helmet preceding us. Right? I've always... Um, Pantera's got that same sort of thing where it's like that groove metal. It's like metal, but it's groovy and makes you want to dance. It's the same thing that makes Van Halen so awesome. It's heavy and it's this crazy guitar, but it swings and it makes you kind of dance a bit. It's it's weird, right? It's like this metal music that makes you dance. But yeah, the, the, as a working man's metal, sure. Yeah. it, it, <laughs> yeah, it They look more like working men too, right? Like, yeah. It's cool that you you mentioned Pantera because I went and watched the three music videos for the singles on this album and I actually got a Pantera vibe like they were black and white kind of performing in industrial warehouses it it had this intensity of a Pantera video it's weird like yeah. it it does, they don't sound like Pantera but just watching just they Pantera is the band that came to mind it's the same kind of it's definitely the same kind of riffs like we it's funny when the salads borrow from Helmet we've done it where we borrow from Pantera in the same song. And so we'll go from like a Pantera riff into a helmet riff and then into like some reggae or something. Right. But we'll be going back and forth between those two bands because they are essentially playing the same music. Like, um, corn's playing the same music too. It's all that Olympus gets playing the same music. Blah, and then and helmet does it right. And it's always something in that hole there and all of that, those sort of groovy drop riffs with holes with drums. It's so groovy and good. Yeah, I'm a big groove metal fan. So the the first single from that album, Unsung, is the band's the biggest hit of the band's career. It only went to number 29 on the Billboard Alternative Rock charts, but still yeah. it, it was hugely influential. And I have a few things about that song here. So uh, there's a review of the song from All Music that says, Unsung was Helmet at their most focused, alt uh, alternating between memorable verse and chorus melodies and concluding with a monolithic guitar workout featuring noisy, oddly harmonized chords repeatedly drilled into their listener's skull. So I thought that was kind of a cool Well, that's all the harmonized chords that you hear like Deftones doing now, where it's these big, heavy riffs, but there's these chordal movements happening below it right 
we did it at the end of, of money where it's like big chordal movements happening, but it's all metal guitars. Right. So, yeah. And, and then it got some big placements in some notable video games like saints row Madden uh, and grand theft auto San Andreas, as well as three different guitar hero games. So it was a big, it was a big hit in, in the video game world. And then Kerrang had it in its list of 666 songs you must own. And they added a number eight. Out of yeah, 666, right. which is crazy. Top 10 as well, yeah. Because so that's it. It's so heavy and groovy, and it's so fun to play. That's why I love just sticking it on my, through through Pro Tools or whatever now, and just plugging my bass in and playing along with it, because it's so groovy. And I'm a, I'm maybe the world's worst drummer, um, but it's the one, it's one of the few records I put on and headphones and play drums along to all the time because it's so fun um and the drumming is such a huge part of helmet that that was a weird part of warp tour is that they the drummer couldn't do a couple of the shows the original drummer and they got some drummer from one of the other huge metal bands on the tour to play with them um and all of a sudden all the kids came to see helmet because they wanted to see this other drummer but all of us that grew up with Helmet are like, that doesn't sound quite right. But everybody else is like, this band is amazing, right? But it, it's it's funny how you you need to do something like that to make young people interested. So the second single or the third single in the meantime got nominated for a Grammy for best metal performance, and the band Soulfly and Lamb of God have covered that song over the years. I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, I've played it a whole bunch too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. they're so fun. Those songs are so fun. Any sort of up and coming band, go play some helmet songs. It's so it's it's how you can learn space and music. I've I've spoken about how good Neil Sanderson is at production and hearing the quiet parts in music. That's what makes helmet so amazing. It's the holes that are inside of it when they stop. And I, I used to love going to see them play when I was younger because they would hard pan everything too live so yeah so one guitar is on this side and the other guitar is on this side so when they go john 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 and then it would all come in john like on either side and oh all right and it was it sounded so good to me and so i always wanted my bands to sound like that too like let's just copy that so a few more points and we'll move on to the next album. So the other guitarist in the band, Peter, uh, his then wife at the time suggested for a band named Helmuth, like the German last name. And and the singer, uh, he misheard and he thought she said Helmet and then thought Helmet sounded like a cool band name. So it, it was supposed to be Helmuth, which is funny. It's a good heavy band name. Eh? I've never yeah. really given it any thought. Well, it's like you got to wear a helmet when you listen to heavy music, you know? Or it's like, just hard. It's hard. Like oh, that's music, true. Right? And, it, and it's, but it's, the thing that's cool about Helmet as well as their branding over the years, right? If you go back and you look at all of their album covers or, and, and it's, or their videos and th it's, very similar to what you see with the Deftones, where it's consistent, consistent colors, consistent kind of ideas and feelings, and the sort of this imagery that is, um, they're just so well branded too, that it's like you go to a helmet show, you want to buy the merch. 
because it looks so great. The cover of that meantime record is the design is amazing, right? It's that red with the white box around it. And then the rest of the record, I think, is blue and black of some image of some people doing something. I don't even know. There's but a guy, a guy shoveling some substance. Is, yeah, okay. You can but barely make it out though. The colors and the design of it, it really went in line with um almost like skate culture too, like skateboarding culture at the time and the way that skateboarding clothes were looking like drawers and all of the different brands of skate companies that were coming out, all of Tony Hawk's crew that were creating skate shirts, all that, the helmet stuff looked like that. Right. So it was, it sort of went along with that culture in my mind too. And it's, I don't know, that's a big part of, of helmet and the Deftones as well as all their branding, right? And you know, Corn has always had great branding. And I think what's bringing Limp Biscuit back to people is they're so amazing at branding themselves, right? That if people will forget that they hated them before, and they're just like, "This is branded so well, I need to go see them." He dresses up like a cowboy now, or or he's dressing up like an old man, but really he's doing the same thing he always did. He's just such an incredible performer. And he's and Fred Durst is undeniably a rock star, right? When you watch him, just his attitude and stuff, but it's, they're just so genius at branding. Like, like where a red hat backwards is going to make you think Olympus Biscuit, right? It's so brilliant. And helmets the same way. If I see those sort of, shapes and stuff i know what i'm getting and there's a sound associated with it and anyhow i love it so i have some critical acclaim to share with you about the album uh so all music labeled the album meantime saying arguably one of the most influential and overlooked rock records of the 90s and then uh oh we have the sound of meantime with Paige hamilton's uh, riffs, the jazz influence chords and solos and dual voice singing style proved inf influential to new metal and alternative metal bands. The album is considered a definite, uh, definitive influence in post metal. Uh, you have Kerrang that has it in their list of 50 most influent influential albums of all time. You have Rolling Stone has it on their list of hundred greatest metal albums of all time. Uh, Revolver has it on the 20 great albums of 1992. So just you're not alone in loving this album. Oh, I don't uh, think the, there the would be. A, I don't think there'd be a Lincoln Park without Helmet. And Lincoln Park was the biggest selling band of what 2000 to 2010 or in the world. They're the biggest. He, he actually worked with them apparently. Yeah. Paige Hamilton. Yeah, it makes yeah. a ton of sense. I bet he played guitar on their records. And we, and we, you know, it's, um, yeah, because they, I remember it was funny when Lincoln Park came out. I was like, oh, okay, someone's mixing the Backstreet Boys with heavy metal now. That's what's happening, right? Like we're taking this pop music and mixing it. But it really, we're talking about the same thing. It's funny because our conversation, that's what Jump was doing, right? Um, and that's kind of what Helmet was doing because they were taking this aggressive metal, but then singing these nice melodic things over it. And then these big, open, beautiful chord changes that would happen sometimes. Right. But yeah, really, really interesting. And I, and I guess Linkin Park was doing kind of the same thing, right? Where you're mixing metal with groove, with um, a little hip hop, pop, pop music, with a little bit of hip hop and all of that stuff. Right. Like, it's still all that same stuff. You know, there were a couple bands that came out during those times that 
taught all of us that anything was possible. And I think Helmet was one of those where it's just go be yourself. Just go do anything you want. Right. And, and they were like that. Um, definitely Jane's Addiction was like that too, where it came out around the same time. And it was just so different and so counter to everything else that we were hearing that it was like, oh, I can do this too. Right. And I'm Mother Earth is there you go. It's like Canada's Jane's Addiction meets Canada's Van Halen all wrapped into one. So I have one final thing. And I think you will be happy to know this if you don't already know this, that Helmet released their ninth album called Left last month. So there's a brand yeah. new Helmet album, if if you didn't know, which I didn't know because I wasn't familiar with the band before. Oh, yeah, I listen to it all the time. Yeah. OK. Uh, is it solid? It's it's good. I, I It's funny. It's, I don't like the production as much as what they used to do. And I, but I, maybe I just need to give it more time. But I love the production on those earlier records. There's something that um, there's something spongy about them. So maybe they were recorded on analog because the the time I, I imagine that meantime would have been recorded to tape. I bet, and I bet it went through tubes and a great big old soundboard as well. And so it has this softness, this spongy feeling to it. The first and the new one is, even though it's groovy and it's kind of cool and has some good tunes, it's it's more in your face instead of the spongy bottom to it. But it's still good. It's okay. still good. And I went and saw them two years ago or something. They did a they did a, a celebration of twenty two years or something like that, where they would play twenty two songs and twenty two small venues around the world in 22 different countries or something like that. Um, and I went and saw them at the horseshoe in Toronto. It was amazing. They went and, and holy crap. <laughs> it was, and I, the amazing thing is I went with Darren Pfeiffer's ex-wife, Vicky, um, who was, who turned out to be Helmet's label rep back during the meantime era. She was their rate label rep. And, and I was sitting with Vicky and I went with Vicky and, and Darren, Darren from the salads and Paige on stage was making fun of Vicky the whole, like, which husband are you on now? And stuff like that. Like, I can't remember and stuff. And it was like, wow, I'm connected to this guy somehow. And I had to go, but I could have hung out with them that night and just sort of spend time. And I, it's funny. It's like the universe has been trying to draw me towards Paige Hamilton because I was asked to go like, come and hang out. We'll have a drink and I've got to go home. I can't. There was a time in 1996 when I was living with Grant um, and our manager at the time was the festival director for CPI, which is now Live Nation. Um, and And he called us and asked if we wanted to he asked me and another guy if we wanted to go play golf with Paige Hamilton do you want to go golfing with Paige who's the singer from Helmet do you want to go golfing with Paige and I said I don't know how to golf so I didn't I didn't know how to golf so I didn't go but I've been invited to hang out with Paige twice now right it's that that's just more proof that the things you obsess over right that the only record I listened to for three years will gravitate towards you if you just stay focused on them long enough, right? Like 
so weird how that that works you're it? always you're always like one person away from your idols you know and, and, and well, with the always... op with the option of being there with your idol as well yeah and it's it's always within your grasp it's always there yeah and it's funny sometimes people just hand it to you on a platter and you're like no nah, i'm not hungry right like yeah <laughs> so let's dive into your third album on the list so bobby mcferrin medicine music comes out in 1990 uh, for our listeners that aren't familiar with Bobby McFerrin, super unique artist. What makes him so unique as, as a musician, um, as a singer? Well, people that would be familiar, I think his big, huge hit is on that record, isn't it? Don't worry, be happy. It's not on no. that record. No. Okay. No. So it, um, it's funny that I don't know it's not on that record. Um, so he's the don't worry, be happy guy. So he was um he's a acapella singer where he he's basically he's discovered that the most important voice is your body and so he's really a promoter of dance as well because dancing is using your body to create music in a sense um and he and so yeah they're all they're mostly acapella records he has a lot of jazz albums where um and the thing that used to blow me away about it back then um was the same sort of thing was i knew how they were recording those records and then and a, there was no digital recording at that time right so when you listen to a record like that it's just him that's just what he sounds like and he would just overdub and he was a master of overdubbing all these big harmonies and it's sort of what jacob collier does online now it's all sort of based on that beautiful bobby mcferrin stuff and take six is another acapella group that used to perform out in the streets, I think of New York city. And then they did some TV show themes and had some huge hits and same sort of thing. Um, I think the story with Bobby McFerrin is he was an orchestra conductor, I believe. And then he's also a piano player um, first. So the singing sort of came second and then his or came third. And his, um, his dad was an opera singer who was on this album he has songs on that album that he dedicated to his mother. I think the very last song, Psalm 23, which is um, just taken from the Psalms in the, in the Bible um, because he, Bobby McFerrin's also a pretty religious Christian guy. Um, but it's interesting. He says the most important thing in that book are the Psalms. And he says this because Psalms, you know, spelled P S a-L-M-S is is the music of the Bible. And he says that's the heart of the of that book. And I think it's I don't know enough. I'm not educated enough on it, but it I think they're in the center of the Bible as well. And so those are kind of the heart of the book. And they're all and it's all music. And so he all the time talks about that. And then he will record these psalms and things like that. And so for him it's very spiritual. But yeah. He's uh he's just a singer. And I, I know we had a conversation about seeing him perform. Um and it's yeah, so amazing. He, so you I, mentioned you mentioned that, you know, when he's recording, it's just the vocals and he's overdubbing over. and he's building the rest of the band and the other instruments, but just he's doing them with his voice. So he's doing the bass with the lower notes, he's doing all that stuff. And the first thing you would think is, oh, that's cool recorded, but how would he pull that off live? And then if you want to talk about what he does oh, live. Oh, he just does it, right? It's amazing. I, I 
Um, I think you saw him in Ottawa. I saw him in Toronto. I saw him in Brampton at the Rose oh, Theater. Brampton at yeah. the Rose Theater. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, I saw him in Toronto at the Roy Thompson Hall. Um, I've been wanting to see him forever. And I I got some tickets as a gift. And I went with my brother-in-law. Um, and yeah, when you go to the show, it's just... When we got there, the Roy, I don't know what your experience was like, but Roy Thompson Hall, it was just a single chair in the middle of the stage with a single microphone sitting on the chair. Um, and Bobby McFerrin walks out, picks up the microphone and just starts singing. And that was it. And then he slowly sat down and he spent the whole show singing. He got people from the crowd to get up and sing. He recognizes, like Jacob, that the majority of his audience are musicians and the majority of his audience are singers and entire choirs will come together to come see, see him perform. Um, and so he will use the audience to sing during the show too. And cause he knows a bunch of them will know like the cello part to Ave Maria or something. And okay, sing the cello part. Um, so yeah, it's just him and a microphone. And when I saw him at Roy Thompson hall, um, I think he does this a lot. I'm not sure if he did this at your show, but he will do a Q&A after the show on stage where he'll answer people's questions because so, so many people want to understand how he can sing like he does. Um, and, and that show that I went to, so he walks out a single microphone on a single chair on this great big, huge sold out theater and he just starts singing. And in the first... 10, 20 seconds, I look to my brother-in-law, you know, we're both grown men in our thirties at the time. And I turned to him and he looks back at me and we're both, our eyes are just full of water, right? We're like, what is happening? There's like magic coming out of this human being on, he's just standing there using his voice and it's making us pull, like sob, right? And, and you look around and it's affecting everybody that way. Everybody's sort of like, look, my hair standing up and I can't, I'm hypnotized. And you could hear a pin drop and the Q and a at the end of the show, somebody asked, what was that very first song you played? It was beautiful. Um, and Bobby said, well, I, what I've started to do to make it easier for myself to perform this way, where it's only me is I do the hardest thing I can possibly do first. And I start doing it before I even sit down. And we learn that the very first thing he does is he comes out and he just makes up a song. He just improvises a song. He just makes up something out of the blues. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And he just comes out and sings something. And in that first 10 seconds of whatever was just intuitive and happening in real time was making this entire place like collapse, like all of our souls collapse, right? Like, it was, it's pretty remarkable. And I, as a kid, I was so blown away by the way he recorded records um, that I spent, I had a multi-track tape player that I could go, you know, move the tapes around and keep recording with a microphone and it would get hissier and hissier and hissier as I recorded. But I was determined to figure out how to record Bobby McFerrin songs. And I would have been 16 in 1990 when that came out. So I would have been 16 um, mimicking the songs on that record. I know I did Sweet in the Moment on that record, but it's because he that one, he does it in layers. So he starts with one voice, adds another voice, adds a third voice, 
And so you can hear where it's at in. And so I, I remade it and I was so proud of myself because it sounded pretty good. And then I started trying to figure out there's this really beautiful song on that record. Um, there's no words. Is the melody. Um, I have no idea how he makes it sound like that. It, it's like, it, I want to pull it up so I can see what that song's called. So I could tell you but it's one of the most beautiful songs I would think ever written. Uh, it's called Common Threads. It's called Common Threads and it's on that record. And it's probably in my top three songs of all time. And there's noises in that near the end of it where it's like these high pitched that sound like keyboards or sound like little bells and these descending thing that sound like stars falling from the sky and it's yeah it's all voice and it's so beautiful and he performs i know his dad sings opera on that record on one of the songs as well and it's awesome um but he performs with some of the greatest musicians in in the world and a lot of jazz legends right yeah so he does he plays oh what's the name of the bass player Oh my God, he's African guy. Oh, he's so good. Doesn't matter. But there's some performances online of Bobby McFerrin and, and him just improvising music together. Just the two of them, a bass player and a singer sitting together on a stage in front of, you know, tens of thousands of people just improvising, just making up music. That leaves fly. so much room for the vocals, right? Like if the bass frequencies are here, it allows you to just kind of paint a picture and play around up here with yeah. the vocals. Oh, it's Richard Bona is his name. And Richard Bona, like Bobby McFerrin, is in that 1% of musicians in the world that are at that level, that are just embody music in a way that nobody else does. You know, that's what made a guy like Jacob Collier so explode so fast um and connect because he embodies music in a way that is very rare right where it's it's so rare and then all they want to do is share it and play with it and 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 it's like a game almost but bobby mcferrin is is definitely like that it's so awesome it's for me it's funny because there's a record i don't i think it may have come out a couple of years after medicine music and it's called hush and it's just bobby mcferrin and yo-yo ma who if you know who yo-yo ma is he's the world's he's considered the world's top cello player um beautiful he has so many records that are just cello yo-yo ma records i think he i think he may have played at the inauguration of obama as well i think he may have played cello at the inauguration of barack obama um but he's that record is amazing because they're doing all of these that's so that one is on par with medicine music where i've listened to it my entire life and tried to figure out how the heck does he do this because they're doing cello suites but where bobby's singing the other part right so he's singing the cello like the other cello part where there's it's supposed to be two cellos but it's bobby's doing one cello and then yo yo ma is playing cello and they do stuff like Flight of the Bumblebee, right? There's all that super fat. And Bobby hits every note perfectly. 
And it's not like today where we can fake it. You know, it's part of what is killing my soul and making it hard for me to keep, keep doing this stuff. Um, is that so much of it is faked now. So many people fake it just because the technology is there. Um, but it's when you listen to an album like Hush, that what you're hearing is just what those two guys would sound like if they were in your living room. And it's remarkable. It's so crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Anyhow, there you go. I'm so in love. <laughs> while I was listening to this album, Medicine Music, I just kept thinking, man, this is such a a pleasant and soothing listen. Like I can picture you getting up, putting it on and just pouring a cup of coffee and grabbing a book. You know, it's just such a a pleasant, uh, warm listen. That's a, that's a funny thing to say, because I had a house party at my parents' house when they went on a vacation when I was in high school. Um, and... I stayed up like the entire high school came. I got busted by my dad eventually because of the shop vac was in the basement was full of beer caps all the way to the top. So I did an amazing job of cleaning up, but I didn't empty the shop vac. So it was full of beer caps. Either his um, son is a raging alcoholic or he threw a party. So yes, I obviously threw a party, but I have this crazy memory from that party uh, because there were all these people passed out on my in my living room, my family's living room on the couches and stuff. But I'm still awake because I've got anxiety. All these people are in my house. The sun is coming up. I'm pouring myself a cup of coffee, just like you said. And I put on this record. And I just sat and I remember sitting in the living room, looking at all these hungover teenagers. And I was sitting in my mom's big easy chair. And I listened to medicine music and enjoyed a coffee as the sun came up. So you're absolutely right in your perception of how it was listened to. And your imagery is spot on. Those were the vibes that I got. I have a few cool things about Bobby McFerrin. Um, he was he was 31 years old when he relate, released his debut. So he was super late to the game. And it's cool That's to amazing. see. I love that. It's cool to see that starting at 31, he goes on to have a number one hit with Don't Worry, Be Happy. That song wins two Grammys, uh, makes him the first artist ever, the first acapella album to win a Grammy. So he was groundbreaking in his genre. He's won yeah. 10 Grammys over his career, which makes him like one of the most decorated musicians of all time. And um, yeah, I have a, a few quotes here. And one of them talks about the instrumental songs, kind of like you highlighted. So um the Los Angeles Times wrote that McFerrin sings splendidly, his intonation never faltering as he goes from throbbing bass notes to soaring light falsetto. And then this is the quote that kind of says what you said. So the Austin American statesman wrote, McFerrin's penchant for unusual vocal innovation is present throughout the album, but it's the songs without words uh, in McFerrin's musical universe that are the most challenging. Oh, they're so complex and challenging and amazing, right? Yeah, it's just when he hums. And I, I, I've learned so much from him from that Q&A. So he talked about how to use microphones properly. Um, it's funny, I've had people argue with me about it in, in bands. Um, but I, I don't know how you can argue with someone that can sing like Bobby McFerrin when he has a range like that, where he has that remarkable range where he can sing the bottom note of a piano and the top note of a piano. Um, and somebody asked him, um, 
about his singing. Like, are you projecting? Are you, how are you singing? And he said, I never, how loud are you singing? And he said, I, I always sing at my speaking volume. I never sing louder or quieter than how I talk. And so if you do that, you'll have an easier time singing too. You'll have an easier time hitting all your notes and, and, and it just will be more natural and easy. And I took that to the bank and man, is he ever right. Um, and I've, I've, I worked for one of the biggest backline company or I managed the biggest backline company in Toronto for years and years and years. So I got to work with every artist. And, and one of the really remarkable ones at the Junos I found was when they did the celebration of Alanis Morissette. It's making me think of Bobby McFerrin's singing style. Um, Cause we set up the stage for Alanis and had to box in the drums in a cage, like in a glass cage, um, put the amps for the guitars under the stage facing backwards away from the audience because she sings at such a calm relaxed level that the hard rock music that's coming out is going to bleed through her microphone and going to screw up the sound so she sings just even though she sounds so i am let me find you the one that she did with the chili pepper guys what's that song her huge hit um she's singing super soft just like Bobby McFerrin. She sings quietly, even though it sounds like she's yelling. And so I've taken that to the bank and I use that a lot. I try not to ever yell. Even You can make it sound like you're yelling without having to actually yell, right? But I saw her not this summer, but last summer, she was one of the headliners of Blues Fest. So it was oh, cool. Ottawa's very own Alanis Morissette headlining in Ottawa, hometown that's hero. That's amazing, so what a cool, cool part of her career for her. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and uh, Taylor Hawkins had recently passed away, and his big break was at the height of Jagged Little Pill. He was Alanis's live touring drummer, so she had a, a whole video kind of backdrop for one of the songs, like honoring him and his life. So it was it was nice. Oh, I know he he played he was Sass Jordan's drummer too. I don't know if you know that. I think but... he went from Sass to to Alanis to the Foo yeah. Fighters after that. Yeah, yeah, I have weird memories of that because uh, I had a the band that I got a call to go play golf with the singer from helmet. Um, we played at Cayuga speedway for the May two, four weekend and opened up for Sass Jordan. And, and at the time that was Taylor Hawkins playing drums in the band. And that guy never, never, ever got out of my mind from that day. And that was before, I guess anybody knew who he was or anything like that, but it was just because he was so freaking cool and played drums so awesome and the way he was just absorbing that crowd so right before they went on stage taylor hawkins climbed up on the fence um and sat up at the top of the fence so he could look out at the crowd in the field in the raceway right and just sat there with his drum pad and his great big black sunglasses and his blonde surfer hair dude hair and just practicing away watching the crowd and i was like man that's how i want to be that's so cool and then watching him play with the band, it was like, damn, he's good, right? But crazy. That's yeah. a good memory. Yeah. We got uh, we have two more albums. So let's talk about Fishbone, The Reality of My Surroundings. This comes out in 1991. I know you're a massive Fishbone fan. I know uh, Fishbone plays into the salads history for, for different reasons. Uh, so can you can you share, I guess, how you first got into Fishbone? 
Oh, it's probably through the other guys in the salads. I think it's probably through um, Dave Z and Davy Summerfelt. And it was it was funny. We didn't. I guess they play ska music, sort of like the specials do, and they play a lot of ska and and hard rock and stuff. But I didn't even know that was a genre. I just thought they were awesome. And it was sort of like the police. I had no idea. So the salads were playing ska, but we were like, no, we're playing why is it called ska we're just playing like the police and we're playing like fishbone what are you talking about right and, and then we started to learn the hard way as the guys in their black and white suits would give us the thumbs down because we would play rock and stuff but yeah i fell in love with fishbone as a little kid it, the salads guys used to stand outside of like kingswood music theater to get our truth and soul records autographed by the guys in fishbone and and stuff like like it was just they were just a childhood we loved them um and then like you're saying we were connected through the salads with them our our manager rj guha in the 2003 for our first couple records we um he was connected to them through the look people the band the look people had played some shows with fishbone and and he managed the look people as well, which was a big, I don't know if you remember who the look people are, but the chili peppers had him on stage with them at Lollapalooza and stuff like that. Kevin Hearn from bare naked ladies played in the look people. Um, but he ended up getting us on fishbone tours and then it turned into fishbone being on salads records and becoming friends with the guys in the band and, things like that over time. So it, it's another one of those sort of manifesting things, but I, I, yeah, started listening to them as a kid, just thought it was heavy and awesome and cool. Their first record they made in high school, right? I don't know if you know a whole lot about Fishbone, but they were the very first group of black kids that were integrated into the white high schools in Los Angeles and into Hollywood. So they were getting bussed in to these all white high schools during a really volatile time, um, which we obviously still haven't gotten ourselves out of yet. We're still trying to figure it out. Um, but they, they apparently started that band because, well, everybody's already scared of us. Let's just scare them some more. And so they just started a band in high school. And and uh, I don't know. It's everything the salads do is sort of we're kind of copying fishbowl. Every, so many bands copy fishbone it's like a helmet where they are the birth of tons of things gwen stefani will say she's always just copied angelo Moore from fishbone she wins all these awards for her style but she's like i'm just copying angelo i'm just trying to look like angelo um and there's so many of us like that right and that's um we all we all wish we could sound like fishbone but we never will because we'll never be that good see i always assumed they got together you know late 80s early 90s but it was 1979 when they started in high school Their like first record with um oh my gosh we played the song with angelo in cleveland at warp tour uh I can't believe I can't dance into the, the skanking to the beat. Thirteen skanking to the beat. That's on their first record, right? They recorded that in high school. They were high school students. That record was made when they were teenagers, and it's like out of control, amazing. Like there's as teenagers, they're better than most bands 
still coming out now, right? Like it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And everybody robs from them. Everybody borrows from them. The chili peppers borrowed from them. The Primus borrowed from them. Um, we borrowed from them. They're sort of a, a jumping ground for all sorts of bands out there. And reality of my surroundings was the first like major label, like huge major label release for them, possibly. It, it's how it felt because it's when they did all the great big huge Lollapalooza tours they got on and all of that stuff. And and that's when they really unleashed some heavy, like groovy metal tunes. And the Sunless Saturday is on that. Fight the Youth, the very first tune on that is heavy as can be. All songs that I would use for teaching guitar lessons too. So yeah, this is like you mentioned. So this is the band's third album. There's 18 songs, so it's like a monster listen. Well, there's a bunch of little short live things. There's about five on. little yeah. 30 second clips, but uh, there's three singles. You just mentioned two of them. So fight the youth everyday sunshine and sunless Saturday. And uh, I was going to say, it's funny. You mentioned RJ Guha. He was my teacher in college. So I took entertainment business management and he taught me, I think it was like the booking agent portion or concert promotion or marketing it was something uh, like that so i know rj it's funny you mentioned yeah he used to work for courage artists and touring so he was yeah before i i think we were one of the first bands that he decided to try to manage um because yeah he was he was well known in the booking agent world yeah and he worked a lot of little quirky bands like he would do Buckethead and fishbone and things like that so so you're talking about fishbone you were saying you know, when you first started listening to them, it was ska. So I, I didn't know Fishbone that well before diving into this album. And I always just thought they were straight ska. But as I'm listening to this and I hear songs like um, Behavior, Control Technician, Fight the Youth, Sunless Saturday, these are like metal songs. So I thought they were just oh, yeah. the kind of the upstroke ska I'm hearing like metal. And I was like, I did not expect that. So oh, they must be entire, just across the spectrum genres. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's where the salads come from, right? We're just borrowing from Fishbone. And it's, that's what I mean. It's like all these bands are doing this now, but there were a few bands that did it first, right? And they're one of those bands. And it made them impossible to categorize at a time when record companies needed to fit you into a category. Um there were also black rock band. It's amazing. Lenny Kravitz has been talking a lot about this recently, right? And same I with- I just saw that, yeah. It's great that Lenny's talking about it because it's interesting to hear Lenny talk about the um, not being invited to the BET awards and things like that because all of a sudden it made me realize, oh my God, Lenny Kravitz is black. <laughs> it, it, like it, it's, it's funny how my brain never, because of the way we categorize music and people- um, and there are all these rock bands that are some of the best bands that have ever existed and rock and roll started with black musicians too. So it's so crazy that these don't get included in that world. And it's all like white kids that like it, right? Like, yeah. and like li living color and fishbone and living color. Yeah. Cause Corey Glover came out and wrote a statement and says, no, Lenny Kravitz is right. Yeah. He's exactly right. Look, look at what we've done. Look what we've been invited to do. 
but look who never invites us, right? Um, why not, right? Like, and and also the th the thing that's remarkable about it, I don't know if you paid attention to the lyrics on the reality of my surroundings, like the whole record, right? Or their do housework, all these different tunes, the title of the record, the reality of my surroundings. It's all, it's about that world. Here I am, this black musician in this, in this rock and roll world, I don't fit in. And here's the history, right? Here, here it is. There's all these sort of slave driving songs. They're so brutal. There's some brutal stuff on that record, but it was a big, huge pop album. And when we toured with them, I know it was a constant thorn in their side too. And there were, it was a constant argument. They had, we our first tour we did with them, they had recently recorded the album on Hollywood records that had Gwen Stefani on it and all sorts of other celebrities that love that band. Um, and the songs were beautiful and really commercial and ready to just go anywhere. Um, and all these huge artists on the album said, Hey, we'll all be in videos with fishbone and the record company was like, nah, it's not worth our time or whatever. And they just kind of shelved it. And it was probably one of the best records they ever made and had all of these people trying to show the world who they were. And the record company is like, eh, doesn't fit into this thing. Right. And it, yeah, it's a crazy thing. Cause yeah, the bands we all grew up copying are all sort of beyond Van Halen and the police are all, they're all the black rock bands. We were copying living color and we were copying fishbone, right. And 24 seven spies. And that's what Darren Pfeiffer did last night. There were guys from 24 seven spies playing the bad brains guys were playing fishbone guys were playing, you know, it, it's this genre of music that just crushes everything else um, and gave birth to all these other things, but has this deep rooted oppression too it's been oppressed because it's it's all it's black musicians playing rock and roll music and heavy metal right stay in your lane well when did that ever become a white person's lane because it was really wasn't it elvis stealing it too right like it's sort of i i don't feel qualified to even talk about this stuff but it's really interesting and i know that we've all been um partial to the groove that fishbone can create like on a tune like fight the youth or sunless saturday and then everything that a band like living color does where it's like hard rock but they're um they're playing in a certain pocket and a certain type of groove that we always wanted to achieve and we never seemed to be able to get there and we started trying to do it digitally with Pro Tools, right? Like shifting the where Darren would be singing or pulling the bass just like a hair further back because I was always a little bit forward or something. And we were like, oh my God. And we started calling it Bro Tools because it was making us sound more like all these black rock bands that we loved. We we're like, we just, maybe we're not physically capable of this. So we have to create it inside of digital world, right? So anyhow. Yeah, it's I, a long, crazy thing. And it's it's really interesting to see Lenny talk about it because Lenny is the one really huge internationally known radio hit artist 
from that still world. still has challenges with that oh and he's and he's so awesome looking eh? and stuff like he's he's just a rock star and so it's like it's great that he's gonna he's talking about it it's something that's hard to get a voice out about it there's a fishbone movie i think you can it was on netflix i'm not sure if it is anymore but someone made a whole documentary about fishbone and it's full of people like flea and um different musicians like that that all say we were all just copying fishbone and they were the band that were supposed to be big and it's been really unfair because we are when we were just copying them and 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 then it goes from these clips of them touring reality of my surroundings in front of massive crowds um and then it'll go quickly to a clip of them now in like germany playing on a stage and there's like 10 people sitting in wheelchairs, like 20 feet back that are kind of paying attention, you know, and it's this really weird world that they exist in where they're, I would say the with Van Halen, there's like fishbone is one of the best band rock bands that's ever lived and probably will ever live, but you got to go see them to figure that out. And you'll just be like, how are they doing this? Like, how do they have this much energy? And we would tour with them and Angelo would keep a bucket of ice water at the back of the stage, like side backstage so that he could run over there and submerge his head into it. And literally when he would do that, we'd be standing there and it would go and you'd see steam come out of the water and he'd come up and he'd run back out. Right. But it was just to cool himself down. Those guys take turns doing front flips into the audiences or yeah. I don't know. I think we all just are mimicking those guys. So speaking, speaking of flea, my, this is in the year 2000, this is 23 years ago. My dad surprises me with a road trip slash camping trip. And the destination was from Ottawa to Saratoga Springs, New York. And the, the, climax of all of this was a triple bill concert in saratoga springs new york the headliner red hot chili peppers the middle band stone temple pilots and the opener fishbone so yeah there you when go. i when i was 15 my dad took me i don't know how he knew that chili peppers were cool and fishbone was cool and sdp were cool but that's where he brought me uh so i saw fishbone uh, when i was 15 23 years ago so yeah that's crazy yeah we <laughs> Thanks, Dad. We're one of those bands. It's crazy. We had a moment where we went to all of the whole band of the salads went to go see Fishbone. Um, it was before we knew any of them. We just were going to shows, and we went to some show, and it was a ho- it was a Halloween show in Toronto. And they were playing some big event, and we all the entire band of the salads we all dressed up as Buckethead, who's who played guitar and. Guns and Roses, so people know who he is. Kind of now he's got we the were, KFC, raised a KFC bucket. bucket on his head and a white mask and a raincoat. He's supposed to be horror. He was just a he was just like a solo guitar player that we all listened to. Um, but we all dressed up as Buckethead, except for our, our singer in the salads at the time. This was before Darren Dumas was in the band, before Mr. D. So our singer Davy Summerfeld. So this would have been around 1998 or something. Um, and he dressed up as Colonel Sanders. And so he dressed up as Colonel Sanders and we all dressed up as Buckethead. Um, and we went to the show and we were standing right in front of the stage 
all as Buckethead and the guitar player at the time was a guy named Spacey T and he was playing guitar and he looked at us and he started laughing and he winked and he flipped his guitar over and on the back of his guitar was a great big huge sticker of Buckethead which was so crazy and then Angelo invited Colonel Sanders Davy Summerfeld our singer on the stage and they skanked face to face and so Angelo face to face with Colonel Sanders, you know, who looks like a Southern, like a man from the past, like a white guy, like it's just this imagery on stage. And they were skanking and dancing so hard together up there. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that was a pretty cool memory. So, so many fishbone memories. So we have one album left. So we've already gone for two hours and 20 minutes. Are you good for a few more minutes for one final yeah. album? <laughs> Yeah, we, you and I could talk music forever. So uh, this album is David Lee Roth. The album is Eat em and Smile comes out in 1986. So he does 1984, which was with Van Halen, the first album we talked about. And after that, he goes on to do this album. Uh, it debuts at number four, sells over two million copies, four singles, Yankee Rose, Going Crazy, That's Life, and I'm Easy. Uh I I, w I was more familiar with the Van Halen music than I was with the solo stuff. Listening to this album, I was surprised. This is an incredible album. I, I love this album. There's a lot I want to talk about about the musicianship on this album. And I wanted to say that this is the best on this album. This is the best that his voice has ever sounded to me. I don't know if that's oh, yeah. a amazing, thing or not, man. but uh, what, what can you tell us about this album as a big fan of it? Oh, I, for me, it was um, so David Lee Roth left and, and it's, you know, the Steve Vai always claims he wasn't competing with Eddie. He had no reason, no reason or interest in doing that. Um, but this record came out and this was, it was seriously chopping heads. It was like, they kicked David Lee Roth out. He's like, okay, check this out. And, it, and it's like, it was everybody in his band. So it was Greg Bissonette and Billy Sheehan and Steve Vai are all like the best guys in the world. But it's not only they're the best, they have they're like on fire, like they have this fire and this attitude. Um, and still I listened to it, I, knowing I was doing this, I put it on last night and just skipped through it and was just like, oh my God, right? Like it's still just cutting heads. They came out and just cut everybody's heads off, said, ah, you think I can't? To me, it was sort of like Roth giving the rock world the big finger well, I can be better than Van Halen, right? Like, cause it is remarkable. It's one of my favorite guitar records of all time. And for me, the big, it's funny that La that's life and I'm easy are like the big singles off it. I didn't know that because those are like the goofy songs, you know, like Van Halen puts goofy songs on records and those are the two goofy ones. And the, the one, the big ones for me on that record are shy boy and elephant gun. Well, I, okay. I have to say this. I, I actually put notes on just those two songs. Uh, I put for shy boy and elephant gun, the bass and guitar playing together are the craziest thing I've ever heard. Like the whole well, album, the bass and guitar are insane, but it's the way they're playing against or with each other on those two specific songs that you're like, what is happening right now? Now go back and listen, go back and listen to the salads again. Cause we're just copying that record everywhere all the time. Like we do it constantly and it's, um, and it's all that stuff. And Dave and I do it 
live all the time where we would just do all of that stuff from Eat Him and Smile, where we play all the finger tapping stuff in unison together um, and just play crazy runs at the same time together. Um, yeah, it's so fun to listen to and it's so fun to play. And those songs are just so awesome and kick butt and the playing is so fun. We were little kids when that came out. I have, so the salads, we started our band in 1986. Is that when this record came out? The year this came out. Yeah. Yeah. So we started that band in 1986 and we all went, we would all go see David Lee Roth play and, and then we'd all buy concert shirts. And so there's, I have videos of us playing concerts when we were that age, like Grant, Dave and I playing shows, but we're all wearing our David Lee Roth shirts from the concert like the week before or whatever, like we all have them on. Let's wear our Roth shirts for the show, right? Like, yeah, that that's such an amazing record. It It's it's funny because the only Van Halen records I've ever had hanging on my walls are Van Halen 1 in 1984. Um, and then, but I've always had Eat em and Smile in a frame on my wall. And I've always had Huey Lewis and the News in a frame on my wall too. But they're all it's all stealing from that. And all of our, I don't know, so much lyric stuff we took from that David Lee Roth, Eat em and Smile record, like all the stylistic stuff that David Lee Roth's doing, we've stolen from there, all the playing. We were little kids and Canadian Music Week in Toronto used to be, back then it used to be like NAM show in, in California where it was a lot of equipment and gear and instruments and all the people that sponsor that were endorsed by those instruments. Um, and so we would, as little kids go to this and get to meet our meet rock stars and, and we, and the Sabian booth, which is a drum company. It makes symbols had Greg B. Sinette there. Who's the drummer of Dave Lee Ross band. And it was during this record. And so we all, we had to go meet Greg B. Sinette and, introduce ourselves and we told him about our band and and uh and and we asked him for some advice because we're writing songs now can you give us some good some good advice on writing music greg and it stuck with us and it still sticks with me to today and it is in tune with everything we've been talking about um is he said well good musicians write music and he said great bands borrow music all right and so we went oh and so we just started like okay let's just borrow from this and borrow from that and borrow from fishbone and borrow from helmet and borrow from roth and and it and it worked for us right and all of a sudden you have all these songs so you're like oh you take all that you know you're not trying to the wheels already been rolled down the road just take the the the, the pieces that you like from that and make your own go in your own direction or whatever but it's already all been rolled out so he was right but anyhow yeah it was super influential yeah listening to the album for the first time uh over the last few days uh three things stood out so number one was I, new... it's funny i feel offended that you only just listened to that like it's, it's because it's so, so it's same with the helmet it's like that are they're so ingrained as part of me since i was a little boy but i'm like what are you talking about how have you lived without those records? So in in my response to that is, you know, part of me is like embarrassed that maybe I don't know these albums, but then part of me is honored that at 38 years old, I'm hearing some all-time great albums for the first time. Like that's one of my it's favorite, my favorite, cool. 
one of the favorite things about doing this series of my five favorite albums is I'm actually discovering, you know, like there's Aussie albums that I had never heard, like Blizzard of Oz. It's like, I know Crazy Train, but I don't know the whole album. And, you know, there's a song Goodbye to Romance I had never heard that's my favorite song in that album. And yeah, I know. Stop yeah. it. Look, we're I'm, I'm playing, a little, I'm a little younger than you. I was you. like 12 yeah, years you know. old. I was playing Goodbye to Romance in my bedroom. Yeah, right. So listening to the album, what stood out was one, the musicianship is world class. Like, I don't know if I've heard an album with as good of musicianship specific, you know, the drums themselves, the bass itself, the guitar itself. I don't know if I've ever heard musicians that good together. Uh, where it's for, uh, where it's a nonstop. It's party. an onslaught. It's super fun to listen to, too, because it's not like it's like a jazz record or a fusion record. It's just like this insane plane that's got a ton of fire and it swings and it and it's makes you happy and gives you energy and it's it's amazing right yeah yeah and it's not just that it's virtuoso performances on every instrument it's not just that but they're all oozing attitude and creativity and and the the parts are all memorable so it's like you can play very well but something generic but these guys it's just stuff i've never heard before and i didn't know that this was kind of the debut of Steve Vai. Like apparently this is what brought him to the worldwide, you know, the attention of the world was this album that everyone. Oh yeah, like, definitely. Who for the me, hell? Like, yeah. how do you go from, how can you go from Eddie Van Halen to anyone else when you've already been with the greatest of all time? And it's like, well, here's this, you get the, here's this Steve Vai character. Better than everybody. <laughs> yeah. And then there's Steve Vai and you're like, Jesus. So when I'm listening, I don't know it's Steve Vai when I first listen and I'm thinking, like, did he bring over Van Halen to this project? That's how good the guitar was. Yeah, you know, it's so remarkable, right? And it's it's still mind blowing. Where I told you, my son is playing music now, and when I put it on last night, he turns to me and he goes, "Is that guitar player even human? Is he a human being, or did he come here from another planet? Like, what is that?" And I said, "I know he's an old man now." This album is how old? It's decades old. So it's 39 years old because I was yeah. born in 85. And it's still so. better guitar playing than everybody else in the world. And nobody else can touch it still, right? It's like, how is he this good? And and where and where it's so unique and cut heads so hard that I guess almost 40 years later, it's still doing the exact same thing. It's still just as good. Still, nobody's ever played quite like that, right? Or it's like it's like Eddie, where it's like nobody else can play like that. It's I actually, like I actually had a note that after listening to Van Halen 1984 and and listening to David Lee Roth, Eat 'Em and Smile, I actually had a note saying if either of these albums came out today, it would win the awards for Guitar Player of the Year. Like there, even today, there's nothing. Oh, yeah, that's it would this still good. crush everything. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if those two albums were head to head, what would have happened, right? If Sammy had sang on 1984, right? Yeah, it's so wild. Uh, I guess the last couple of things about this album, uh, I actually saw Steve Vai here at the Bronson Center. So you played, I saw you with iMother at the Bronson Center. So you know, it's maybe a thousand people. It's pretty intimate uh, for, for Steve Vai. And man, this guy's, you said your son heard it and he's like, is that guy even human? I was going to say, he brought out a three neck guitar 
and played oh, it. And your thought was this guy like is from another planet and touched down to earth. So it's the same thing your son said. It was my experience seeing him live. Well, that's what he promotes himself too, right? Him and Jesse attorney have always been aliens. They're supposed to be, they have alien secrets and they have all these things that they know that other people don't know. Right. Like create this, but really I think Steve Vai just wishes he was Prince. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny. You mentioned Joe Satriani. So, uh, I could be wrong, but I believe the lineage is, so you have some of the greatest guitarists of all time. So you have Steve Vai, you have Joe Satriani, you have Kirk Hammett from Metallica. And I believe it's uh, Joe Satriani was the guitar teacher. Sorry, um, Steve Vai was Joe Satriani's guitar teacher. And uh, Joe Satriani was Kirk Hammett's guitar teacher. So you actually, have a lineage. Or is it reverse? It's actually Joe was all their guitar teachers. So okay. Joe taught Steve Vai guitar. There's then, some great articles. There's some great footage recently of those two guys having conversations about that. Um, because it's reverse. so valuable what they they teach, what he was teaching Steve Vai, which is know all the notes on your instrument, like n understand your theory and stuff like that is what Joe was teaching them. But yeah, Joe taught um kirk hammett as well joe also taught alex skolnick who is the guitar player from testament who is also the guitar player in oh my gosh what's it what's that guitar band that does all the christmas concerts uh trans-siberian orchestra he's the guitar player from trans-siberian or orchestra as well and so that's another one of joe satriani's guitar students and there's somebody else too that's a big rock star that joe taught so joe's yeah. obviously this like incredible guitar teacher that like knows how to harness people's yeah. like. Can you imagine you're the, you were the mentor for Steve Vai? Like that's so I insane. Know. That's and nuts, right? You, you're actually right of the order where I wasn't sure who mentored who, but you're right because I remember Steve Vai saying that he was like 12 or 14 when he went to Joe Satriani. And he said the best thing that Joe Satriani did was he didn't try to change my style. Like Joe Satriani is so unique and he didn't try to change that. So he would teach him things, but always told him like, keep that weird uniqueness that you have and expand just on expand that. Expand on your awesomeness. Here's some value and just take this. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. He's great. To I, it's, it's so fun to know that that's that one teacher. And it inspired me as a kid. Cause I knew that as a kid that I pulled out the, it was back in the phone book days. I'm old enough. And we were, that I was looking through the phone book for Rick Emmett from triumph. Cause I knew he was a Canadian and likely lived in Toronto. So I was, and I was calling anybody that had a name that resembled Rick Emmett. Cause I wanted to be like Steve Vai and Joe Satriani and have a rock star teaching me guitar. And then, then I started looking up Derry from honeymoon suite as well. Cause I wanted one of those guys to be my guitar teacher and never fabricated, but I tried. It inspired me. You, you've manifested everything else in your life. So that, 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 probably was close to happening anyways. Uh, well, I worked with Derry a lot and I, and then I've recorded at Metalworks, which belongs to the guys in Triumph. So I don't know. <laughs> two, two final things. Uh, so the album was named album of the year in 1986 by Kerrang. So just again, everyone acknowledging how amazing this is. And then the title of the album, the eat them and smile. So that phrase eat them and smile is actually trademarked all the way back to 1928 by a candy company, which makes sense. Oh, so. that's really cool. I didn't know that. 
So a cool little fact, eat them and smile by a candy company. Um, that's it. We've gone through your five favorite albums. Uh, two and a half hours. That feels like a normal conversation for us uh, about music, which is it awesome. Does. When you asked me to do this, I thought, oh, wow, how cool. I get to sit here and gab about the records I love and nobody wants to hear about the records I love anymore. So thanks for the opportunity to to do that. It's something that I think I need. <laughs> So thank you. You're very thank welcome. You yeah, yeah. And I, again, I wasn't super familiar with all the albums. So I have a playlist on Spotify where every time I have a guest, I add their five albums. So it's the, my five favorite albums playlist. And now there's oh, like, that's so cool. Now there's like 600 songs. So at any point, if I want to hear good music, I can go to, you know, musicians, I'm a fan of the albums that shape them. And it goes through, you know, however many albums we've done so far. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to check out that playlist because that's awesome that you're compiling that. I can tell you where I discover music in the same sort of way um, is Darren Dumas from The Salads. Just look him up on Spotify. Listen to his playlists. He's such an incredible he'd actually be great to do five albums too with because he's such a music lover. When I met him, he was working in the basement at, at HMV in Toronto. He was the hip hop expert guy there, the hip hop and rap and R&B guy. Um, but his playlists on Spotify are like extensive and he is always discovering new music and always wants to share it. And so if I want to hear something new, I just go Darren Dumas and start listening to his playlists. Right. So, now I know yeah. where else to look. I'm going to look at yours. Yeah, we, uh, him and I, a couple of years ago, did the two-hour deep dive, but we haven't done the five favorite albums. So that'll be a good one to to get He's him back. A out. Huge music collector and has a massive vinyl. He collection. kept taking out vinyls, like as we talked about things. Yeah, things he, loves he would turn around. around. He's yeah. that record collector that loves to like show everybody too. Yeah. So as we wrap up. Are there any honorable mention albums that you can just rapid fire through? So just. Name the album, name the artist, whatever. Well, I think anything I else? A, a couple in here, and you I said can tell the you cure. I I, well, there's the Cure um, show. It's a live record, and it's because I listened to that. It was another album I had in my car for probably three or four years. That it's all I listened to. Um, there's that. I mentioned the Cult Electric, and I can remember the very first time I heard that at a party in grade seven. And it was the first time I ever got interested in who the producer was. How do they, this sounds so good and so raw. Who is this? And it was Rick Rubin. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. He produced Just the greatest story. of all time. That's all. Yeah. 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 Um, and so that was the first time I noticed production was Rick Rubin. Um, but there's, I realized there's bands that I still listen to every single thing they put out when and they release music all the time and one of those is deftones i think there's a lot of us my age that are like that we Love still listen deftones. to everything deftones right everything they put out we listen to but i think they've got that encompassing of the cure and helmet and um that that groove metal genre rap metal it's all sort of in there but they're it's all dramatic and melodic and so i love everything by the deftones Switchfoot is another band where I love everything by Switchfoot. And it and it's like whenever records come out, I listen to it immediately. I worked for Switchfoot one time and I was, got the opportunity to tell them tell them that, which was really great. Um and they're another band you talked about um 
somebody not being discovered till, or figuring it out till they're in their 30s. Who is that? Uh, Bobby McFar McFerrin. Bob Bobby McFerrin. Who's okay, 31, so, yeah. Yeah, so Switchfoot, I don't think they made a record till they're in their 40s. Those guys. Really? Like, so yeah. so meant to live and dare you to move from is a beautiful yeah, disaster, older beautiful yeah. something is their big album. Yeah, so they didn't get discovered till they were quite old, right? Hmm. It's pretty amazing. And then, um, yeah, there's other people like that. But I, I have a massive Bob Marley record collection, so I love Bob Marley. I love that you can buy so many Bob Marley recordings of one song and get you'll get like 20 versions of one tune. Um, and I think it's due to the way the record business used to work in order to pay for flights. He needed to go record more music. So he just re-record the songs with whatever studio musicians were there. Um, I don't know. There's so many records, Joel, but it, we, it's, we've given uh, our listeners a lot to listen to from this yeah. episode. So I think. yeah. Awesome. Cool. So as we, as we wrap up, I, I just want to mention, I've said it every time we do an interview, I mentioned that, you know, I started this podcast at the very start of the pandemic. And for the first two years, literally nobody listened. It was just me interviewing people I knew that were awesome that, yep. uh, you know, that other people didn't really know. And, and, you know, there was, I don't know, 50 people that listened to an episode and I just kept going. And yours was the first episode where there was actually like a name, a band name attached to it. So you, you were playing with I Mother Earth. And from your interview right away, um, Rick Jacket from Finger Eleven sees that interview and says, hey, man, the pandemic's happening. We have nothing going on uh, with yeah. Finger Eleven. I'd love to do a two hour deep dive. And literally from those two interviews, having multi-platinum I Mother Earth, having multi-platinum Finger Eleven, Every interview for the last year and a half has been basically gold, platinum, multi-platinum bands. And it stems, so back, awesome. it stems back from your interview. So I always give Yay. you credit as, as being the first musician in a band that people know. And it's taken off the last year and a half. Things have been I pretty awesome. I love to hear that, Joel, because the, the thing I'm constantly taught by um, my broker, I'm a realtor now, right? So my broker here in Prince Edward County. He's all the time is just saying, just find some way to add value to people's lives. Just add value and you'll be fine. Right. So thanks for letting me know that. I, it looks like I did exactly what he, he said. I added some value and, and then it, it took off and Rick added more value. And then the value just keeps getting more, right? The more of these you do, the more valuable you're the experience with you becomes right. Absolutely. Yeah. So Chuck, thank you so much. Thank you for saying yes to the invite when there was no reason to say yes at that point. And uh, we've built from there into something that uh, most people say yes now, which is awesome. So I, I appreciate you, Chuck. I appreciate you as, as a person and as a musician, I've been a fan of the salads from the start of I mother earth, the different projects you've been in. So thank you for being you. And, uh, I know that our audience appreciates it because, uh, your other two episodes are two of the most downloaded episodes in the podcast history. So thank you again for coming on. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Joel. I, I really, really appreciate it. It's so nice to talk to you again and, uh, let's, let's do lunch again sometime. Yes, sir. We'll talk soon. So, uh, Chuck, thank you for for coming out. Thank you to the uh, the the Chuck fans, the Salad fans, the I'm Mother Earth fans. Thank you to the podcast fans. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for sticking with us for almost three hours. And we'll see you on the next episode.
Yep. Play your guitar. Play your guitar. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, like, comment, and share. What I want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a two-hour deep dive interview? You can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L. And you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message. And I'll see you on the next episode.